Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. This is a show where we read books, we talk about them, hopefully we make them understandable, hopefully give you some good ideas to go and chase down and think about. And uh, this episode we're doing uh, Lisa Nakamura's book, Cybertypes. Colon, race, ethnicity, and identity on the internet. This is uh, what, you know, on the show, we kind of do three different types of books, I would say. We do classics in the field. We do newer books that we think are interesting. And then we do weird stuff that has nothing to do with the field. Allegedly. That we, allegedly, that we think should be in the conversation. This is of the, the first category, I think. Mm-hmm. Lisa Nakamura is someone who whose name has come up a bunch of different times, I think, on the show, but has come up probably most um, in depth in our episode on Games of Empire, I would say, because mm-hmm. Lisa Nakamura wrote um, a, an essay in the early 2000s about Chinese gold farmers. And that essay was very important for understanding the kind of way that actual Chinese-ness, Chinese nationality and the kind of racial discourse um, from the U.S. to China gets remediated into somewhere like World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. And the Games of Empire book was in conversation with that. One whole chapter is in conversation with that of figuring out how those kind of mechanisms work. Um, Now, that's not that chapter is not in this book. I I don't want to lead anyone to to think that. But Cybertypes is uh, kind of the DNA that leads Nakamura, at least to my reading, to getting to that form of argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's why we decided, I think, um, you know, tell me if, if you had other motivations here, Michael, but that's why we decided to look at this book, which is not necessarily 100% a game studies book, but I think is crucial for game studies, the kind of uh, groundwork for game studies in the early 2000s, at least in its relationship to new media theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I had no uh, sort of other motive other than that if you are reading about uh, race in games uh, or race in digital media more broadly, you're going to see Nakamura cited uh, in this book specifically mm-hmm. because it is uh, it's when when if you're not in academia, uh, you one of the things you learn as you're sort of going through the process of like, you know, grad school and becoming an academic is learning what are kind of um, sort of keystone texts uh, that show a lineage of a certain type of argument or a certain type of thinking uh, with regard to a certain perspective on a certain topic. And this is one that gets cited a lot in, in race and digital media stuff. And we've touched on that in gaming circles, particularly. And I'll talk about this as we talk about the book. There's a lot of stuff in here that feels like, uh, like, uh, get, it feels like it gets followed up on in, for instance, uh, Kishana Gray's intersectional tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, cer- certain ideas or ways of thinking about uh, race and and mediation. So anyway, that's all to say, uh, if you've grabbed this book and or if you're starting it and you're thinking, hey, this isn't directly a game studies book. Yes, but as Michael is saying, you know, keystone text for sure in jumpstarting that conversation and bringing some some of the conversation that's happening in new media studies, some of the conversation that's happening in early kind of cyber culture studies, and then games, bringing those in conversation to with bringing those into conversation with each other. And importantly, what, what I found fascinating about this book um, that we'll talk about as we get into it, but 
the re- kind of relationship of of how porous those things are that there's not mm-hmm. really a, you know a fine line in this early um, internet culture that uh, Nakamura is writing about. It's not like there's strong boundaries between game space and kind of interaction with games over the internet, and then interaction with say um, uh, internet portals, mm-hmm. which are different, uh, you know, than other forms of internet use. So. Um, I found this really exciting because it does give uh, also some, I don't know, groundwork for thinking about the complexity of the internet in the late 90s and the early 2000s that that we have kind of nostalgied away uh, mm-hmm. in some ways. Like to see people nostalgic for the the early internet and in the, the early 2000s internet in the year 2021 and then to uh, think about the complexity of that through Nakamura here, those are those are interesting things to run into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's the thing we're saying here too that I don't think I said before. Um, so Cybertypes is published by Rutledge, and it's from 2002, and it's really in conversation with, I would say, you know, the internet culture of 1997, 98, up to yeah. that time period. Yeah, she she mentions at one point she started research for this in 1995 and then completed it, completed her draft in about 2001. So it's mm-hmm. a really interesting chunk of the Internet, considering how much the world changed post 2001. Yeah, and it might be in the introduction somewhere, too, where, where she explicitly says, like, the way that, that you access the Internet and the way the Internet culture worked in 1995 was radically different by the time she finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, even you know, it's the kind of thing where, like, if you're doing other research methods, right, like, video games have changed a lot over the course of six years or whatever. Um, you know, six of our years and certainly six of the 1990s years, right? There's big changes that happen. But I would say, like, the basic mechanisms of video games haven't changed in significant ways. The the way that we might talk to people, right, the mechanisms through which we might talk to people, those really haven't changed significantly in the past six, seven years. There's voice chat, there's text chat. The kinds of questions you might ask are roughly the same. Mm-hmm. But the way the platform, for lack of a better term, the way the platform of the Internet changed during that time and the kind of uh, changes that she's tracing in this book fascinating to me uh i was uh you know as i started this book i thought it was one kind of book and then as i read it i realized it was another kind and (laughs) that was an interesting experience for me yeah my experience of reading this was also uh sort of fascinating because uh obviously the book is dated in some ways right and that's just the nature of the thing uh but then a lot of this book is nakamura kind of pointing to tendencies or phenomena that happen online. And she's like, hey, this is kind of an interesting problem. And then realizing in the ensuing 20 years, no one's done anything about it. And I don't mean like people haven't been researching it, right? Uh, But more like she points at things that are problems or potential problems. uh, And like you can trace direct lines to kind of dynamics regarding race that she is talking about in, in like Lambda Moo in the late nineties, uh, straight up to like things that are going on on Facebook. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's kind of a surprise to me. The the surprise for me, cause I'd never read this before. I'm, I'm assuming you hadn't read it before. I have read, um, the chapter on menus and identity, like the, the fifth chapter or whatever. Um, 
the the one that comes late and that I think is like it's I think that's the chapter that's preview for the end of this episode. I think that's a chapter that's really excertable for for the classroom if you uh wanted to do that. Yeah, I had read chapter two before. Mm-hmm. Um in, in like a unit in grad school. I don't it wasn't really called a unit, but like around some readings like um uh, Beth Coleman's Racist Technology, Jennifer Gonzalez's work, like this kind of mid-early 2000s uh, work on race and the internet. But yeah, I'd never read the full book before. And so I kind of thought, I don't know, I had it in my head that this was kind of a book of racial object analysis in the sense of like, here's stuff on the internet that is associated with race. And, you know, here are the kind of racial implications of that and, and kind of drawing theory out of that. But it's a... um in some ways, it feels like an archive, like an archive of affects in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. here's how people thought and understood race in this very particular moment, and here's how they were wrong, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and in other ways, sometimes it, it feels like a almost cultural studies, right? Because it's like, here how, you know, the, the chapter that is about, is it in the menu chapter where she's reading the, this is how you know your Japanese-American email? Uh, yeah, yes, because that is uh, a, a, a counterpoint to the menu-driven identity that she's talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, and so, so, you know, it's close reading. It's doing close cultural analysis of a chain email, basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, which is a different kind of, kind of form. So I, I, you know, I, I guess, I don't know. And it's not, it's not like a capital T big theory book, but it's absolutely in conversation with those kind of theoretical works. I, I was uh, kind of surprised while reading it and, but surprised in a really good way. I, I, uh, despite it feeling dated, like you talked about, uh, because it is right. It's about a particular moment in time. Um, it there, the core arguments are uninterrupted into the present, you know, very Mm -hmm. minimally transformed into the present. And I think that game studies, you know, to say this up front, it's worth sitting down and reading and being in conversation with this book. Um, I certainly felt that way. I was reading this book and I'll flag this occasionally where I was like, Oh, I've written on this exact issue before, um, and it would have been great to have read this before. So I think people should, um, should check this out. Um, I'll, I'll say that again at the end, I'm sure, but I, you know, I want to flag it here at the top. Um, and it's a very readable, um, 140 pages, 150 pages, something like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, you, you, this is not a 400 page, you know, um, tome. It's not, you're, you know, it's not going to slam when you, when you, uh, put it on the, on the countertop. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh. And and relatively excerptable. Anyway, that's a lot of uh, um, top top level stuff. I guess we could probably get right into it. Um, something else I didn't say before is that uh, Nakamura is at the University of Michigan now. Uh, she is the Gwendolyn Calvert Baker Collegiate Professor in the American Culture Department. Um, she's the director of the Digital Studies Institute there and is part of or is appointed in uh, the Asian Pacific Islander program. Shall we get started with the the introduction or yeah, the introduction absolutely. is is it's the it's it is the introduction it's going to give us the snapshot of the whole book uh mm-hmm. is there anything here that jumps out as sort of like in particular that you would want to foreground in in the introduction proper yeah uh we have both written down this quote but i but i think that it's the one that summarized the whole thing um the internet this is on page xi so page 11 mm-hmm. uh the internet is a place where race happens Yes. So the internet is a place where race happens, uh, is addressing kind of two things at one time. One, that we know race is not biologically real in the sense that, that there's no biological difference between the races that grounds some sort of, uh, you know, racial life. 
Um, but also that it's a structure that has real effects on human beings in the world. And people are obviously racialized and experience themselves as racialized um, and part of ethnic groups and all kinds of things like that. And so there was a move. We're going to hear about this the rest of the book. There's a move in the 1990s, a, a kind of techno-libertarian, uh, utopian impulse to say that once you're on the Internet, these things no longer matter. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so for example, right, the kind of phenone classical example of being, uh, you know, raced as a black man in the streets by a white child, that can't happen on the internet, theoretically, right? No one knows that, that Frantz Fanon is a black man on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) it's a weird thing to say, but but theoretically, right in the, in this universe, right? He's not, what he calls the epidermalization of race doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. um, or in this techno libertarian mindset. But Nakamura says, actually race gets imported because race is a, is a structure race is a, a set of things we live within. And it's a set of assumptions that we carry about positions in life. Um, it comes with us to the internet, right? It comes to, race comes to this place that is theoretically, you know, completely smooth and non-visual and has infinite possibilities of how you present yourself. Um, even though we have this ideology or, or some people have this ideology that you can be liberated from, or everyone can be liberated from any kind of racial or gendered uh, kind of position in life, it still follows us in structural and conceptual and imaginative ways. And some of those ways are new, right? Some of those ways are ways that race has never functioned in the real world, and some of them are decidedly not new in that they are just importing the same ways that racialization and racial positioning and racism um, have have existed in the real world. So um, when, when she says the internet is a place where race happens, she's saying that the internet is a place where all of the same complexities of uh of you know racial positioning that happen in our physical world are still happening um but sometimes that's with um additional comp additional complications additional methods new methods things like that mm-hmm. um so so that to me is like the big that's you know the big uh billboard for the whole book the internet is a place where race happens yes i agree and uh the only thing i would add uh, is just, I mean, this is sort of part of the reading experience, uh, and it speaks to, uh, the, like, how strange it is to read something that is two decades old, but also feels very apt for the present moment. Um, the, the thing you're talking about, the sort of techno-libertarian idea of, like, race kind of, or, the internet disembodies us and makes Mm -hmm. race kind of a, a a non-issue, uh, is something that is going to be not in the introduction. It's not exactly laid out um, as specifically as it's going to be in the rest of the book. Uh, But the thing that it really does call to mind for me, right, is remembering that this was like, this wasn't just uh, like other academics, right? That there were two competing factions of academics of like people uh, uh, like Lisa Nakamura um, taking one stance and then sort of uh, more techno utopian academics taking the other stance, although those camps did emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, This was the way that the Internet was being talked about when I was like 10 years old. And I yeah. and it was not just how it was being talked about, like, but you would turn on the news and you would see like, uh, you know, some talking head uh, speaking about uh, uh, the wonders of the Internet and, and the liberatory potential. But also this was how the Internet was marketing itself. And that's something that Nakamura digs into a lot as the book goes on, is how much of uh, this techno utopianism ends up being kind of marketing spin uh, and uh 
it's just interesting to think back on like my youth and sort of the emergence of the internet into public consciousness and realize that almost everything I was being told about the internet at that age was commercials. It's kind of two different com types of commercial, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the gateway ad or whatever, right? The HP, you know, here, here's your gateway into um, a whole universe of learning, whatever, looking at an online enabled incarnate encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's that, but then the other side of the ad, which is like wired magazine, mm -hmm. um, which is its own kind of um, ideological spin publication uh, for pushing these ideas. And, and something that really struck me, about, you know, reading the introduction for this, but also kind of several times in the middle of this book is that so many of the insights uh, in or like concept big conceptual insights in um, uh, Kashana Gray's inter, uh, intersectional tech, so many of those are only really understandable. You know, I feel like I understand that book so much better now that I've read Cyber Types, and, mm -hmm. and I mean that in the sense of the the reason the ideology that people have around kind of racial typing and the way that people who are non-white get treated on the internet is, you know, on the other end of this kind of like massive flood of ideology that none of this stuff exists. Right. So like when those black men are talking about the way that they get raced in voice chat or whatever and treated, you know, obviously uh, brutally um, uh, in those voice chats, it, to, to me, it's so clear that that's partially, at least, because of 20 years of or 30 years of advertising saying that none of that exists on the Internet, that no one who is raced exists in this medium. Right. Um, it turns out it turns out when your argument about the Internet is that it dispenses with race and remakes <laughs> us all as post-racial subjects, uh, the post-racial racial subject ends up looking a lot like the subject who has been, you know, quote unquote, most unmarked by race, which is to say uh, you just start assuming everyone's white. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and so it was just a real kind of like big moment for me in the sense of like. I, I could see now, like, from the beginning of this structure, you know, this early internet that, that Nakamura is talking about, to the most contemporary, you know, writing that I've read on the internet, academic writing on the internet, I could see exactly how one structure of advertising, advertising and self-promotion by the internet itself, right, by this, like, nebulous mechanism that is actively trying to write race out of itself, how that produces a condition in which people who are raced uh, as non-white get are, are naturally excluded from it. And I say naturally in the sense of the people who are just receiving all that ideology are assuming that everyone is post-racial like they are, quote unquote mm -hmm. post-racial, which, as you're saying, right, is read into as white. So in any case, I, I just wanted to kind of flag that, that like really mutually enforcing for me and how I understood the kind of structure of race in these digital environments to see the beginning and the end, or the, well, hopefully not the end, the beginning and the contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, with that in mind, what, what is a cyber type? Cyber types are, they get defined here, I think on XIII, are, quote, images of racial identity engendered by this new medium, end quote. Um, which is which is a little bit uh, big. It's kind of a big bucket to fit mm -hmm. a lot of things into. Um, but I think it's also maybe a useful big bucket. Um, and I think probably, uh, you know, close listeners of the show 
um, have found out my kind of arbitrary sense for what's a good big bucket and what's not. Sometimes I think that's really useful. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> you know, mixed realism, not sure that's a good big bucket. Um, cyber types, great big bucket. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, these are basically just what, you know, I would call them maybe frameworks. You know, if I were, if you were to give me this data and ask me to come up with my own terminology from nothing, I would, I probably wouldn't come up with the word cyber type. I would say something like a framework, right? They're, that mm -hmm. they are um, uh, kind of pre-planned or pre-formatted um, uh, systems in which uh, the content and the experience of the internet fits into that generates racial identity, mm -hmm. uh, either for a reader or a participator or or an experiencer or a player. Um, you know, they're they're kind of broad categorizing methods. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't actually know, I, I didn't get a sense here in the introduction, like what the etymology is here in the sense of why types, Oh, you know, well, that's uh, that. great. You should ask. Cause I know exactly, uh, what she's uh, working off of here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Please, please tell me. Yeah. So, uh, Nakamura goes for cyber type, um, because she is playing off of the term stereotype, which mm. I think probably most of us associate mm. with like, you know, like stereotypes as like uh, uh oversimplified broad ideas bigoted about you know races or ethnicities or even like personality types right types of guy but literally mm -hmm. um stereotypes come about in the 19th century as a cheap uh mode of image production because stereotype of course mm -hmm. means stereo means two right so two types right you can uh make many types uh quickly um and I think what she's trying to leverage here is that in the 19th century, the proliferation of easy image production becomes a, a strong force in the way that uh, types of people are imagined, right? You open up your book of, of prints and it's like, you know, here is what people look like in uh, Colombia. Here is what people look like in this part of Africa, uh, that kind of. Uh, drive to document and categorize everything with kind of this uh, implicit notion underpinning it that this is what this is what everyone is. It is what they have always been and it is what they always will be. Right. That that uh, cultures and people are in some sense kind of finalized. And uh, mm. this is going to have big impacts for the ways that I think she's talking about uh, various other uh, issues later on in the book. Uh, but you know, her essential argument is like, just as the, the stereotyping process, like the, the literal image production process in the 19th century, uh, floods into, uh, uh the, the 19th century racial imaginary. So too does like our contemporary internet, uh, or extend, uh, the racial imaginary in ways that are like stereotyping. Uh, but these are cyber types because, uh, you know, they're happening online and it's not simply image production. It's like textual production and it, it's, it's really multimedia, right? There's like, there's, there's a, a critical discussions of like role playing here, right? That is, I think where, why, why cyber types is the term that is chosen. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's interesting too, I guess, to think about the, that relationship in the 19th century and then the eugenics movement uh, mm -hmm. that follows along from it, right? So the idea that you can create reference images for, you know, whatever the, the um, you know, the native knows, right? Yeah. And then that you can do uh, physiognomy and, and phrenology on people to determine, do they fit into those things? And then therefore, are they a type of person? 
mm-hmm. um, you know, the long, long um, uh, research. You can you can read a lot about that. Uh, you know, a lot of visual culture studies work around the production of images that are then used in order to typify human beings and then to do eugenics upon them. Um, and interesting, I guess, to, to kind of think about that relationship here in the sense of thinking about how cyber types get produced in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then produces a whole extremely racialized Internet, mm-hmm. um, you know, 30 years later, um, you know, where uh, white supremacy is front and center uh, managing the types of people who get to have discourse in the world and uh, kind of actively policing that. Um uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm looking here at your notes too, and it looks like cybertype gets deformed or uh, not deformed, but formed around stereotypes in the first chapter rather than the introduction. So I think I just read over that. Hmm. Um, anything else in the introduction here you think um, we need to talk about? Uh, no, because I think really you've already mentioned, like I, I've technically dipped forward into the first chapter because the first chapter is cybertyping and the work of race in the age of digital reproduction. <laughs> We begin talking about uh, Manovich and Arseth in the language of new media and the the very important distinction uh, that Manovich makes between uh, the so what Manovich says in layers of new media is that uh, new media have a, a kind of interesting uh, bifurcated structure that requires a new or at least a, a more aware kind of critical methodology about this bifurcation. Uh, he calls it layers. Uh, there's a there's sort of like the content, right? The digital content and then uh, the digital form. And for Manovich, this is going to... This is where you get the start of like platform studies, right? We're going to look at like the... the, the we're going to look critically at how like this thing has been programmed or coded uh, and then how that informs the types of content that it can uh, give rise to or that it can hold. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Nakamura um, says, you know, she she kind of uh, folds in her argument here by saying that the cyber type is is both form and content, right? It builds off the stereotype in in a technological sense, right? That there are methods of, uh, or, you know, multimodal methods of uh, image or text creation and propagation. Um, And those are things that need to be looked at. And she does look at them uh, later on um, when she starts looking at sort of like how menus, for instance, on uh, what, like a, when you're filling out your profile, right, on a on a website, what are the categories that it offers for you to define yourself? Uh, how has that website been put together? What does the user interface look like? Uh, and then how does that then inform uh, your ability to be a racial or racialized subject online? Yeah, there's a there's a uh, I, I like the language um, that she's adapting from Manovich here, borrowing from Manovich or citing uh, around how uh uh, software is transcoding mm-hmm. culture, right? So that race itself gets transcoded when it when it kind of moves online. So it's as you're saying, it's both form and content, uh, but it's also kind of uh, process the, the mm-hmm. whole time, right? Every moment spent on the internet uh, is a moment of racialization, whether you know it or not, because it's hitting certain frameworks, uh, familiarity or dis- or disfamiliarity. Um, to, to kind of make it happen. And it's this kind of both-and process too, right? So this is on page six. Uh, she writes, quote, bodies get tricky in cyberspace. That sense of disembodiment that is both freeing and disorienting creates a profound malaise in the user that stable images of race work to fix in place, mm-hmm. uh, end quote. So she's literally saying that uh, on the internet, you can be anyone. Um, you know, I, I can pretend to be 
you know, whoever I want to be, but that race functions almost as a guarantor of the boundaries of that, Mm -hmm. um, that, that racialization appears on the internet because it is such a cornerstone of cultural production that you have to have race in order to understand everything else. I found this to be a compelling claim because (laughs) I've read this in lots of different places. Um, and, uh, this kind of mediation quality of, of race. Yeah. And I think a really good example of that, and this is sort of her first example of digging into the, the way that the internet is popularly talked about and advertised about is about 10 pages later from where you were quoting, where she talks, she mentions, um, there's like a full page ad in, I don't remember what magazine or periodical, and it's, I think, paid for by a couple of groups, but one of them is Adbusters. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, the image that it shows is uh, like uh, this, I think, African woman uh, like walking down a, a, a road carrying and I don't, I don't know if it's been photoshopped or something it's or if this is just like an actual image but she's like carrying a a television on her head mm-hmm. um and the basic thrust of the ad whose text i didn't write down is uh, a kind of um well what we would today call almost a, a kind of concern trolling about like oh gosh you know here we here in america have done so much uh with with technology and the internet um but what are we doing really in our in our rush to co- connect everyone on the on the earth to the internet right to to sort of like uh propagate technology and i'm not saying do, to just step aside here. I'm not saying there are like problems with sort of like cultural imperialism here and everything, but um, the specific register that this ad takes uh, by sort of relying on, and this is Nakamura's argument, by relying on this deeply stereotypical uh, image, like a National Geographic style image of like how the other lives, right? The authentic uh, other in some other foreign place, right? Um, how their way of life is actually being disrupted by our drive to modernize and and share our technological bounty with the world, um, this is precisely the kind of destabilization that Nakamura is is trying to talk about. That uh, uh, by sort of enforcing this idea that some people are uh, naturally quote unquote um, not given to technological imbrication, which is you know a bullshit idea. That's not true. <laughs> Um, but by propagating that idea, uh, a, a certain form of subjectivity, right? A certain form of like uh, Anglophone or, or just, you know, generally like uh, uh, whiteness uh, is trying to stabilize itself by uh, holding up this idea that there are there are certain others who might be harmed by getting access to technology or that they need to be kind of like uh, uh, preserved in some way, right? This this very condescending way of thinking about other cultures um, and and where they fit in the world. And again, it it uh, that that idea that people are kind of fully formed and aren't going to change or something, right? That like cultures don't undergo shifts uh, due to changes in their environment. Um, so it all really, I think, illustrates exactly what you were uh, talking about, how uh, these images of race get put out to stabilize uh, a sense of race that is that is truly, I think, being uh, loosened or like it's going it's undergoing some sort of shift um, 
in the move to the digital, in the move to the internet. And this provokes a kind of white anxiety uh, whose response is to like clamp down on it in whatever ways it can. Yeah, the the fear here, the the kind of key term that gets attached to this fear is the fear of monoculture. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the idea that that cultures around the world are being uh, brought under the sway of American media, which, as you're saying, right, that is a real concern in the sense that it is cultural imperialism, right? The idea that uh, the vast majority of uh, global media, or less now, I guess, but but certainly over the past 30 years, um, so much is just American export. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, everyone kind of engages with that. That's changing, I guess, uh, in, in interesting ways now. Um, but, but right, but the, what's being levied here is not, I think using the word, uh, concern trolling is good, right? Cause what this collective that includes ad busters is really concerned about, as you're saying, is not cultural imperialism, although that's certainly a, a part of it. Uh, the part is uh, the real concern that Nakamura is looking at or kind of honing in on is a racial anxiety that asserts or that fears that this African woman is just like us. Mm-hmm. Right. Like like if she is just like us, then what does that do about the differences between uh, uh, New York and Africa, which are actually called out directly? Uh, that's the text of yeah. the, the caption for the photo from New York to Africa, mm-hmm. <laughs> which like, oh, my gosh, like think, think about the, the kind of I don't know. There's a lot of ideology in that 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 one um, location. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and this, you know, for Nakamura is, um, she uses a really cool language here. Um, uh, not specifically referring to this, or she is, she is specifically referring to the internet, uh, in this quotation, but I think it kind of applies to all of it. She says that it provides both images, identi- images of identity and after images, uh, meaning that mm-hmm. there are moments in which, uh, you know, whiteness looks at images of non-whiteness and then, um, panics or or tries to incorporate them or tries to celebrate multiculturalism, right? There are a lot of different uh, uh, options there. Um, and there are, are images of racial identity, identity right? Uh, is it noir net? I can't remember the oh, name. Net of the, noir, actually. Net noir. Okay, yeah. Which is a w- website, community, website and community, I guess, that is specifically for African Americans on the internet or African people in the African diaspora, I think is the, mm-hmm. the way that, that it ends up being talked about. Um, but uh, that, but that those are both moments of identification or disidentification. So like uh, moments of anxiety or of inclusiveness or whatever. But then there are also after images of identity, meaning that we have those experiences. Everyone has those kinds of experiences. And then it experiences a kind of subjective echo of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So so uh, race both exists as a guarantor and a, as a thing of like that we think back on and that we reflect on and that we kind of live within the echo of um, which which I think is a, a neat methodological move here because what she's saying is that there are moments of kind of racial uh i don't know tension conflict uh acceptance right moments of direct contact with race Mm -hmm. but even when those aren't happening you're still living within the context of those racialized encounters whether positive or negative um you know i really like this this uh this quote on page 11 because uh, that that what I'm talking about uh, about images is on page 11 too, but uh, she's contrasting the previous age and the kind of technological age or whatever, 
Uh, quote, in the mechanical age, technology was viewed as instrumental as a means to an end. Users were figured as already formed subjects who approach it rather than contingent subjects who were approached and altered by it. Um, and what my note that I wrote here is that I find that so interesting because I think that that first part, that this kind of mechanical thinking, uh, is still widely dominant within game studies, mm -hmm. which is that I still think, and I recently did a fairly wide reading when I was working on my book of like ways that subjectivity is thought of in games and almost universally, well, not, not almost universally, widely is maybe the best way of saying it. Game study still approaches this question of like, I am a whole person, right? I'm a full, complete subject who is like internally consistent and all this kind of stuff. And I interact with a game and I gain experience from that, right? I, there's this kind of feedback loop of, of empirical experience, whatever. But ultimately, right, that, like that's the encounter. And then, you know, that's what happens. Maybe I morph in relationship to that with experience, but I'm not transformed in any kind of radical way at the level of the way I experience the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so funny to me uh, to read something from the, you know, written in the 90s, early 2000s. It's like, well, we all know that people are radically contingent and not fully <laughs> formed and they're not, you know, singular agential subjects. And I, and I was like, you know, rubbing my chin and being like, do we know that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish we did. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so it's interesting here to kind of see uh, mainline game studies even now in the year 2021. Uh, kind of smacking into um, new media studies from 2002 and still being pretty widely, you know, having a pretty wide disjuncture about the basic assumptions about how these things like race or how things like uh, experience period, how it functions and, and kind of impacts players, uh, readers, experiencers, mm -hmm. things like that. I think one of the other things that would serve to maybe just contextualize this a little bit there are times when this book feels very 90s, not for how it's talking about the internet, but for specifically sort of like the types of theory that are coming up. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, background talk about like postmodern identity, right? The identity as uh, a thing that is uh, contingent or like moves and fits and starts or the, the word that ends up coming up a lot in this book is kind of the ways that uh, identity rather than being unitary and sort of like contained in a single place is distributed among uh, uh, various platforms and technologies and bodies. Mm -hmm. um and that's a it you are correct right in in that uh i feel like yeah 2002 like people have people have read their their uh people have read all of their stuff about postmodern identity they know this but at the same time yeah game studies doesn't quite seem to well you know Game studies doesn't seem to have internalized those particular lessons or doesn't seem to build off of those intellectual genealogies in, in the way that uh, Nakamura's work is doing here. I want to say something here, too, that, that I found really interesting. Nakamura is amazing at um, at at the kind of sloganification of her ideas. Mm. And I and I do not mean that as a negative in any kind of way. There are some kind of pithy remarks here, you know, kind of short sentences that do such a good job of posing questions. You know, we already talked about the internet as a place where race happens, which I think is a good one. Mm -hmm. But on page 14, she says, where is the multiculturalism in multimedia? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's, that's so good. It is very, very good. Uh, I think so. I mean, we've. We're, we're obviously we're doing this thing where we're sort of reading the chapter and then knitting the questions back into game studies proper when they're not necessarily uh, as uh, when the connections aren't as clear. Um, yeah. 
the latter half of this chapter is about a couple of things. Uh, some of them are about some of it's about uh, like more more ads, right? Uh, in in this case, it's like ads put out by Cisco, uh, and sort of I I remember seeing some of these again. This there's weird nostalgia with this book of uh you know various various like traditional quote unquote or we also say, we might also say like stereotypical types of people in different places around the world using the internet uh which again uh pushes on this idea that's running through this particular part of of the book about um how weirdly enough as we as we barrel forward into the the cyber future right as the internet becomes more and more a kind of thing in people's daily lives uh, the response of like tech companies themselves and like internet companies themselves is to, on the one hand, embrace this idea that the internet is going to encompass the globe and it's going to bring people together, um, but then also do this weird two-step where also all of the people that are being brought together, it's going to be like the, the small world ride at Disneyland where mm -hmm. nothing, nothing is unexpected. All the others look exactly how you expect them to. They're all wearing, uh, you know, their traditional clothes or in their traditional sort of homes, right? The, the the landscape is always like, you know, what you think of when you think of that place. Uh, so recycling old stereotypes in order to kind of uh, settle uh, the anxiety that uh, might otherwise be unleashed by the idea that, you know, people people are just people using technology, that they, they might in fact be the same. Um, and she pulls, like, she, she, uh, goes into, like, sort of tourism studies here to talk about that, right? She says, uh, the internet, this is on page 20, the internet functions as a tourism machine. It reproduces digital images of race as other. Um, and then this folds forward into what she calls, calls cosmetic multiracialism, uh, which is the other half of the tech industry here is that, uh, or not the other half, but sort of one of the other points here in the late 90s and early 2000s is that uh, tech had a reputation for being a diverse industry and it mm -hmm. markets itself as a diverse industry. Uh, but the diversity is worth thinking critically about because, as she points out, um, it's a kind of international diversity. Uh, it's um, a lot of uh, people like especially in America. Right. When they talk about the diversity of the tech industry, what they mean is like, oh, we have like an office uh, in California and we have an office in Tokyo. It is not uh, necessarily like diverse in terms of, say, socioeconomic class. Right. There's a kind of emerging um, tech worker class or like a, a digerati uh, a section of society that's coming around. And so the the diversity at kind of the level of corporate um is used to paper over the fact that actual diversity in terms of who is allowed to be online, who is working online, who is participating in, in the collective shaping of what online is, um, is, you know, it's very exclusionary uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the final analysis. Yeah, she's kind of tracking two things at one time, as you're talking about. The, the explosion of... Um, it, specifically talking about Indian engineers, right, and, and computer scientists. Yeah. We get some quotes um, from uh, we get some quotes from actual people. Bill Gates being one of them about uh, how much different types of ethnicities like to work. Yes, um, and and Jim Clark too from Netscape. Yeah. Um, 
But but right, yeah, as you're saying, two things are happening at one time. On on one hand, the tech industry itself is using multiculturalism as a, as advertising, essentially, and saying, look at how uh, international we are, and that internationalism and that diversity is really diversity of um, of Asian workers who are exploitable. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's explicitly the argument being made here, and the kind of claim being made by the, the these. Um, tech empire owners, right? That mm-hmm. that Indian uh, engineers will come to the U.S. or Indian Indian computer workers, tech workers, in a broad sense, will come to the U.S. and will work harder, you know, quote unquote, uh, than anyone else will, right? And and Nakamura is tracking that, and this is something that comes up throughout the the whole book. Is tracking that as you're talking about alongside emergent digital divide debates that we still mm-hmm. see. Uh, all the time, which is that minorities in the United States had, in the 1990s and early 2000s did not have as widespread access to the technology that would allow them to become tech workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is, you know, what gets talked about now as pipeline issues, broadly, broadly speaking. Where are they um, learning to code? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously now we're, we're at the point of that discussion where we have learned that it is, in fact, not a pipeline issue at all. It, it is a quality, a quality of the pipe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's a blockage in the pipeline. Uh, it is that the pipe is violent and uh, oppressive to the people who might be going through it. Right. So they get in the pipeline and they don't they don't stick for structural reasons. Um, but but so, you know, this kind of uh, double anxiety around race in tech is radically inclusive in a way that can be exploited and radically exclusive in a way uh, that just is based on classic American racism and particularly anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is not an investment in bringing black Americans into the fold of um, the the tech industry at the time because... Um, there's not this pre-existing kind of easy access to labor that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what Nakamura is kind of trying to trace, right? How do these real world systems of racial hierarchization and exploitation by whiteness, you know, to, to put it in more frank terms, how do those translate then to the representation of who is building the internet? How does it transform into the representation of people who are in the advertisements for the internet? And how does that generate its own cyber typing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cyber typing is not just um, the way that you are uh, racialized or brought into a kind of racial framework when you access the Internet. It's this whole system one way or the other. And later on in this book, she does a kind of longer read of the digital divide that we can talk about in just a minute. But I think we're ready for. Oh, and there's a reading of Bamboozled here at the end of the chapter, which is yeah. uh, quite interesting. But um, you want to talk about chapter two? Yeah, chapter two is Headhunting on the Internet, Identity Tourism, Avatars, and Racial Passing in Textual and Graphic Chat Spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the places where uh, you feel like how much of a difference 20 years has made in terms of like familiarity with the internet. Um, I'm, this is not a dig at the book. This is just also one of those things where it's like, this like in 2002 you would have to explain to your the majority of your readership how does this chat room thing work um like what mm-hmm. is what is what are sort of what's going on here uh and so we get lots of actually uh it, it you mentioned Arseth earlier and how he's not interested in any of this uh it was very intriguing to me precisely the ways that the, the differences that emerge in how Arseth approaches uh like uh muds and moos versus how Nakamura is thinking through what it means to to be on a, a mud or a moo uh, in a text chat right uh but obviously they're in the the uh 
chapter title, uh, one of our concerns here is going to be about uh, racial passing, and in particular, uh, how the what we've already mentioned the 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 default whiteness of the internet when we start imagining the internet as a place where race doesn't apply, uh, suddenly, uh, you know, who doesn't race apply to? Well, largely white people. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, that that sort of like consequence of uh, everyone assuming a kind of whiteness. And then also uh, she has a couple of stories in here. So she runs through like Lambda Moo. She talks about Ultima Online. Um, and how in a lot of these communities people who end up bringing up questions of race uh, are are seen as divisive, right? They are they are shouted down by their own communities uh, because what what does post-racial mean? It means we don't talk about race. We don't think about it. It gets pushed into uh, into the background, into the assumptions that you're making. Uh, and this also opens up this space where a lot of people uh, start pretending to be online races other than what they actually are. And the ways that they do this, uh, you might expect, are not great. Uh, you know, they're they're weird and offensive. And uh, yeah, that's that's in big picture, right? That is what uh, this chapter is about is sort of when we talk about liberation from race, when we talk about how uh, going onto the Internet makes identity more fluid, uh, we can move things around, we can uh, do things with our self-presentation online that we can't do in, in Dirt World. Um, to use the the canonical range touch term, mm -hmm. um, what what really happens, right? Whose identity is being made more fluid? Who gets to take advantage of all of these new openings for self presentation, um, and who is not? Yeah, and kind of across the board, what uh, Nakamura is tracking is that inevitably, when race shows up, it is. Uh, now it's a cyber type, but it's a stereotype, right? Yeah. So it's it's familiar uh, character models and types and narrative tropes. We're going to hear about about that a lot in chapter three, but uh, you know uh, conceptual tropes, uh, particularly around uh, Asian identity, uh, which mm -hmm. is kind of what she focuses in on um, in, in some of these chapters. And so you know it's not. Uh, I mean, as you're saying, right? Race goes away, and then when it comes back, it comes back in this kind of hyper caricaturized um you know stereotypical state that kind of like bamboozled mode mm -hmm. um uh you know if you're familiar with the film it's basically impossible to summarize what's going on in bamboozled if you are curious about that movie i encourage you to look it up it's it's fascinating film got a criterion release recently but uh there's no universe in which we can do justice to talking about it uh on this on this podcast so um but yeah, so uh, something I thought was really funny here uh, in this chapter, I just want to get this in somewhere, is that on 33, she uses the term M-M-P-O-G-S, M-P-O-G-S, which is interesting to me, right? Because we have uh, M-M-O-R-P-G's. Yeah. <laughs> we've come, this is, this is, let's start constructing our false etymologies now, right? Let's <laughs> yes, please, please. <laughs> uh, so first we had pogs and they were uh -huh. physical and uh -huh. then we had mm pogs which were massively multiplayer pogs of course uh, -huh. uh and now we have champs of pogs uh -huh. but no they're massively massively multire massively oh, multire what what <laughs> word am i using here massively multiplayer 
Oh, shit. Hold on, let me look. I didn't write it down, but it's a weird construction. Now we have massively multiplayer online RPGs. Mm-hmm. Momorpagus. But this is before we had massively multiplayer games. Before there were Momorpagus. They were just different games. Massively multiplayer online games. MP. Okay. Oh, okay. Massively multiplayer MP online games. Oh, okay, so the the P is coming from multiplayer. Interesting. Yeah, that's what was that's what yeah. was tripping me up. Like to. that's what that I was like trying to figure out. Like, wait, where is what's happening here? Yeah, and so anyway, it's just interesting to me that Lambda Moo and which is a mud, which is kind of just like a, a, a big, massively connected online chat room, for mm-hmm. lack of a better, that has physical space associated with it. We've talked about muds and and uh, that kind of thing a few times um, on on the show. It's probably better for you to like read the Wikipedia page than have us try to explain it. Um, but then that gets you know translated into something that has uh, graphics to it, like Ultima Online, and mm-hmm. then that kind of changes the whole thing. And what's interesting to me is that she she's kind of tracing the lineage or the movement of race going away and then race coming back. And and a big thing that she is talking about is that when the internet moves from being a text only phenomenon. Right, so you like mm-hmm. log in and you're in a chat room or you're on a BBS and you're just getting text, um, versus when you get avatar-based chat, um, which then comes with visuals, which then comes with race, which then then comes with race raced assumptions. That's going to bring a whole lot of stuff um, with it and, mm-hmm. and return with it. So, so it, it, what's what's really interesting here is that while before. If you had a character who, for example, um, you know, in in uh, an online RPG, where you had typed out a long backstory for it, then you're going to get, you know, they, you can talk about racial categorization, you can talk about racial backstory, all that kind of stuff, but it is ultimately avoidable in some ways, right? Whereas mm-hmm. um, it is unavoidable once the avatar has race, uh, mm-hmm. you know, once you can see the avatar before you have to read about the avatar. Right. One of the things she points out, uh, just for instance, is that Lambda Moo, when you set up an account, uh, it makes you set a gender, but it does not make you set race. Yeah. Um, and that she says, you know, uh, if you're on, like if you were on Lambda Moo, race was only sort of explicit or clear or visible if you somehow marked it in your display name or if it was listed, if you chose to list it in your profile. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, then she says, you know, many of the people who are role playing on Lambda Moo, it's like, you know, Kinshi uh, 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 Ronin 1920 and you pull up the the his profile and it's like how he's, uh, you know, a disgraced samurai wandering the countryside. Again, the, the reproduction of the stereotype of the thing from other media, um, which to make a point that I think we've already covered from her, but in a slightly different way, right? Uh, Like what the internet does is it just takes all of kind of our racial stereotypes and transcodes them or like re like it it becomes a kind of like weird uh, space through which all of that stuff gets routed uh, Mm -hmm. and takes on new forms. So like, for instance, uh, what she touches on here, the the issue of cross-racial role-playing. Um, and how when people like when what are presumably white people seem to be playing like characters of other races, uh, they go for the most stereotypical, exaggerated, antiquated uh, version of of that type of other that they might, you know, come up with, um, which is also to say like sort of the most broadly popular or or what have you. Yeah. And the, the thing here, too, right, is that 
something to to maybe add or complicate to what you just said is that Nakamura, you know, wh- wh- when you just said that, I thought, well, what about non-white people, right? Mm-hmm. And Nakamura is also interested in this, right? Like, what happens when um, uh, the 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 internet wipes the slate clean, and mm-hmm. then people come to it as far as race is concerned, and then people come to it and they bring their kind of racial representations with them mm-hmm. in whatever way, right? And so I I think. Um, you know, one way of reading the book, and she tries to, to address this in several places or does address it. One way of reading the book would be like, well, what happens when, um, you know, that character you just described is being played by a Asian American, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Nakamura addresses that by saying, like, look, we don't ultimately, right, the internet is correct in some ways, or the, this kind of techno libertarianism is correct in some ways in that race is obliterated, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is, is ready to be rewritten in these places. And yet we're all bringing uh racial stereotypes with us onto the internet right mm-hmm. and we're all kind of um pulling from these pre-existing sets of stereotypes if an asian american creates that character uh, the exact char- character you just talked about that doesn't dodge the problem at the core which is that the the um predominant stereotypical representations in the media that exist are going to get reproduced anyway in these kind of weird sliced out ways. And in some ways it doesn't matter who did it because it's always against a backdrop of everything can be rewritten. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and that's an interesting kind of complication to the, the argument here, which is in some ways just saying that images have a life of their own and everyone you know, regardless of your kind of embodied racial makeup, due to the way the internet imagines the reformation of race, we all get drawn into it in different kind of ways. Mm-hmm. We're all drawn into this kind of like non-complex, easily read, easily understood narrative trope kind of universe um, due to the way that it gets, you know, rewritten into the internet. And she's going to give us some kind of tools for thinking, you know, more... Um, outside of that or, or thinking about ways to to kind of move outside of those ready-made tropes. Um, but I think that's part of why cyber types are so destructive for Nakamura or why she's trying to point them out is that, you know, there's nothing about your real-world racial identity that's going to save you from accidentally reproducing the cultural narratives that you're already immersed in, even mm-hmm. if they're damaging to you. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that's, a, you know, an important kind of claim to keep in here. Well, and a great example of that, uh, to sort of move into graphical chat, um, very briefly, she talks about Ultima Online and about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's a, there's a interesting sort of like little part where she talks about the, the emergence of like, uh, digital sex work in Ultima Online. Yeah. Um, and that's part of her argument about how, uh, uh, how images, uh, produce a kind or images are the images and specifically like sort of the image of the body right the 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 body on the screen that i can kind of like tether myself to as a game player uh is a kind of hook or lure uh that uh is more is it is compelling in a way that uh text-based chat uh is not um is is sort of part of what is going on there um yeah now, now I can do like a, you know, I can create a female orc and do a sexy dance. Yes. I mean, not not in Ultima Online, but in World of Warcraft I can, right? Right. And so that, as you're saying, right, that changes the kinds of um, hooks. Uh, hook, I think, or lure is a good good uh, language for it. It changes the way that we can interact. Um, unfortunately, I think that, that, the, that this argument doesn't get played out enough or doesn't get addressed enough. I think it just comes out as like, 
kind of thinly anti-sex work on the internet. But I also think that 20 years on, Lisa Nakamura probably has a more complicated position than the one that is uh, put out here. Yeah. I, she's she, she's pretty condemnatory of the um, of the like designer, I think, mm-hmm. of Ultima Online, who's like great. Yeah. awesome <laughs> right because because he he finds out that people are doing sex work in ultima online and he's just like oh that's awesome that means that our digital environment is just like the real world because people want to have sex in it <laughs> yep <laughs> and they're gonna pay money for it yeah and so i think the charitable read is that she's being critical of him and not sex work but it's kind of hard right. to tell um right. and, I, and, and again i don't think that that's her like 2021 20, opinion right and sort of similarly uh there's um, a recurring figure here, which is a very like late 90s, early 2000s figure, is the man who uh, pretends to be a woman online, yeah. um, uh, which was just a, a thing that we could not stop talking about in 1999 and 2001. Uh, it, it's sort of this weird, like proverbial figure who haunts the the imagination of the epoch. Um, and I, you know, suffice it to say, like, uh, like 20 years on, I think we have more ideas like we have more sophisticated ideas about uh what happens with gender online but when it shows up here it is just uh it it is always kind of the, the rhetorical figure of uh the the man pretending to be a woman right that's how it's how it's put forward um even the ones who are pretending to be women and then having uh cyber sex with other men are like at there are are in in the way that it's talked about here at the end of the day it is Im- implied that they are doing this because they can't find women on the internet yeah right like um, again yeah. <laughs> all this stuff like the internet was very different 20 years ago the things that were very abstruse and strange uh have in some ways in, in some ways right it's it's heartening to see some some of the ways that uh these dynamics have played out uh in in this case right uh where it's like all right all right we have we have a slightly different understanding of of what exactly is going on here uh, yeah her, her her term that she uses uh which i get a sense is being used uh academically regularly as quote computer cross-dressing mm-hmm. um which carries a lot of assumptions with it too and uh yeah i think now we just have a much more uh you know kind of radically encompassing view that people that that the internet actually does afford people to perform their lives in a broad sense in very different ways. But that also, you know, I think that you could, um, you know, do a kind of similar thing around gender. And I'm sure someone does that Nakamura does around race, which is that uh, it's being constrained and uh, kind of generated for you in radically different ways. Mm-hmm. But I also think that's maybe different than people who, for example, who are trans and not out in their day-to-day life are able to live their life as their uh, desired gender. Exactly. Um, and and have full lives in that way online. But to sort of circle back and grab the point that you were saying about, um, you know, not everyone is... Or, Everyone online might uh, fall into this trap of of reproducing uh, a cyber type, um, you know, regardless of, of your race offline. Uh, her description of Club Connect, which is this graphic chat for uh, users of color uh, that she it. So Club Connect is interesting because I don't know if it's still around. I should have looked this up to see if like this company persists in any way. Uh, but they were apparently this is what they specialized in was kind of like what we would today call like social media websites. Um, but these were, you know, sort of like web 1.0 versions, uh, community websites for, uh, 
like various people of color and, and ethnic identities. Uh, so Club Connect has this graphic chat um, and Nakamura uses it and she spawns in uh, and her I guess it's I don't know how exactly how this works. Right. But it yeah, seems like I she's, couldn't I couldn't visualize this <laughs> yeah. at all. So but it, it looks like she sort of like spawns in with sort of a default or auto generated avatar. And she says it's noticeably dark. But then as she's like walking around the the graphic chat and I'm imagining this is something like, you know, a club penguin or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she notices uh, like many light skinned black characters, Latino men, Asian women, but few black and Asian men. Um, so she sort of like, you know, takes this kind of like uh, uh, temperature of the room and sees kind of like, OK, so who like what sorts of uh, types, right, are are showing up here? And she can note, right, there is there does seem to be a lack of certain types of people. Um, not she doesn't provide sort of any uh, uh, speculation on that, but she does sort of outline, you know, there there are disparities here. Uh, and then there's this bizarre, bizarre thing where a, a user named Miss Piggy, um, who is a uh, blonde white woman avatar, right, uh, mm -hmm. is like her uh, greeters, like, you know, one of those people who shows up when you when you drop into the MMO and just like starts, you know, showing you how to do things. Um, yeah, it's just a it's a different universe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like this this whole explanation of like what is occurring, like uh -huh. moment to moment, just that doesn't this doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so if if this is confusing to the listener, it's confusing to everyone who wasn't there. So mm -hmm. so don't feel bad. Uh, but this Miss Piggy shows up and she you know like has a conversation with Nakamura, um, and then and this is where Club Connect gets really really weird. <laughs> Yes, you can change. You can customize your avatar, as you might have thought. You do this by like getting in in-game currency and then buying body parts from vending machines. Uh, and then you can like gift people like body parts for their avatars, uh, which is in, in some sense. Right. If if I, I, I'm pretty sure right, you can do this, right? It's like you can you can do this in WoW. You can give people armor and things. Um, but this just becomes very, very strange when it's like skin colors and body parts. And Miss Piggy gives Nakamura like a new head, <laughs> which is a white woman's head. <laughs> and Nakamura puts it on, uh, it, but her avatar puts it on, right? But the body stays black. Um, and the Miss Piggy is like, it looks like you, you were suntanned or something. Um, and then Nakamura kind of drops for me what I think is, is the most intriguing bombshell of this whole thing in this, in this graphical chat space where you can go up to like little digital vending machines and buy body parts. Uh, nothing is ever discussed in terms of race. Like it is all like presented as sort of purely cosmetic, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so even this space, um, that is for like, uh, uh users of color, um, you get this strange, uh, hesitance to, to speak openly and instead, uh, race And this is a quote from, I think like page 54 race is constructed as a matter of aesthetics or finding the color that you like rather than as a matter of ethnic identity or shared cultural reference. There, there are a lot of shades here to me of, uh, communities of play or communities yeah. at play. The Celia Pierce book. Yes. No, very much so. And and, a, and specifically that Pierce in that book seems to because we talked about that in the episode right that 
um, Pierce kind of takes a lot of that utopianism at at um, at first glance, or right, you know, kind of at its surface. And here, Nakamura is digging into the kind of assumptions that are built into the aesthetic generation of the character. I remember we talked about that chapter where uh, Pierce goes to the meetup, right? And then they like navigate um, someone's, you know, disability and, and helping them get to the restaurant, I believe was the, mm-hmm. the kind of story there. And that's like this radically triumphant kind of experience. And, you know, this is Nakamura being like, look, even at the level of like aesthetic creation of the avatar, you know, I am being imbricated and raced in weird ways mm-hmm. and or, and being entrained into uh, racial conversations that aren't even happening like on the terms of race. <laughs> it's just <laughs> happening on the terms of like fun options that you can do. And I'm talking to this, uh, you know, um, other human being who is like making, you know, these weird, I, you know, they're not quite racial jokes, but, you know, um, racially infused conversations that are that are not really dealing with race at its surface and so it just seems it is interesting to me to to think of these two kind of uh experiences in connection with one another and how nakamura is kind of addressing some of the issues that we had with that that pierce book yeah no it's just like this whole like the whole sort of like scene of logging into a a a graphic chat for uh people of color being greeted by someone who is presenting as a white woman who then sort of welcomes you by giving you the head of a white woman so you can have the head of a white woman mm-hmm. it's just like it is like what is going on here like i mean the book is about what's going on here but it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's just like the turns that you have to take to like follow this is just yeah ugh. and and i also think that you know some of the value of this book is just in the play-by-play here like yeah. You know, something we talked about the, in the Gray Book, too, is that there just are not that many places in academic writing, especially in, or in the game studies realm, where you can get the play-by-play of this. You mm-hmm. know, if it hasn't happened to you, there's not a lot of places for you to understand how the system works, right? Or how the kind of moment-by-moment series of ra- racializations, how they function. Right. Um, and there's a lot of value in here in that, of thinking systemically about these things work. You know, and it's not just in like uh, a kind of representational accounting of like how many white heads are available versus how many, uh, you know, visibly Asian heads are available versus how many black heads are available. Right. There Mm -hmm. is a way that that is being communicated to people in a moment by moment kind of conversational way in these Mm -hmm. um, in these contexts that that unless you were there and unless you can kind of talk about the building block moments we just don't have access to. So I think there's a whole lot of value in this as just a play-by-play of how racialization works in the moment to moment. The end of this chapter also returns to the tourist uh, that, you know, that we talked about in the last chapter and the tourist shows up regularly across this book. I'll say that I think that the tourist is interesting in this book, but it, but it kind of functions as, kind of theoretical proof you know it's it's what these experiences kind of run into to suggest that they have big uh media studies weight to them Mm -hmm. and 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 kind of from the vantage point of 2021 i don't really need like a theoretical proof about why these things are true they are just on face uh useful for thinking with and and on face truthful for me um in 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 being presented but, but what is interesting to me here is that Nakamura kind of talks about the relationship, uh, this theorization of the tourist 
as someone who is both on the inside and on the outside, right? So mm-hmm. they have firsthand experience of the thing. They can think of themselves as um, being a part of the quote unquote native, mm-hmm. um, but also they're external viewers. So they're able to um, kind of uh, systematize these things and be like, oh, ho, ho, this is how this works. And I can go back home to where I'm from and be able to explain how this works, right? Mm-hmm. I think in some ways that that's autocritical, right, of her experiences and also autocritical of my experience reading this book. I literally mm-hmm. just got done saying, aha, now we know how this worked through Nakamura's <laughs> reportage, right? Which which obviously we don't. Uh, you know, we don't have a full account. Um, but what's interesting to me here and what, what I think is really useful about the figure of the tourist that people, uh, game studies academics or people who are interested in game studies conversations could go back to is that a lot of the way that Nakamura talks about the tourist and how that can be thought of in the online space is very similar to me to the empathy in games conversation Mm -hmm. of like how one can imagine oneself in a system, in a systemic reproduction of the other and yet still go home at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think that if you're interested in writing around empathy in games and empathy games and, um, broadly, how one takes on the position of the subjectivity of another person, reading Nakamura here, the last 10 pages or so of this second chapter, would be very, very beneficial for understanding how this fits into a long 20th century argument about what the kind of context is there. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I don't want to get too d- deep into it unless you have something to say about it, but I just want to flag that for people who are interested in these conversations. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a, a good thing. The only one thing I would add is that uh, um, she also does some very quick readings of the TV series Fantasy Island and Quantum Leap uh, mm-hmm. as sort of further uh, uh, what the thing that you said about, you know, there are certain things that uh, you feel like don't have to be necessarily as, as proven because we kind of take them as true on the face of it. One of the other things that is interesting about this book from a meta perspective uh, are those movements to like, you know, Fantasy Island and Quantum Leap to help people think through using a a more familiar medium, in this case, television, um, to think through the point she is trying to make about what happens online. Um, Mm -hmm. I just I just think I think those sorts of things are very interesting, right? Being a person who works, uh, uh, you know, who is very interested in the ways that uh, different media can inform one another, um, that type of argument uh, and showing how it's showing up here because Fantasy Island and Quantum Leap are not at all about the internet, um, but how mm-hmm. those things can work to make the internet familiar at a point in time uh, when it's not going to be familiar to to most of the readership. Yeah, because as she says, she says this later in the book, uh, it, it might have come up in the intro, but it, it gets a lot of time later in the book. Uh, the internet, as she is talking about it, it's only like five years old or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so so she says explicitly, the most amount of time experience that one could have as a researcher in this field is only five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of says that as a kind of radical democratic move of like, well, no one knows what they're talking about. So <laughs> everyone can come in and, you know, really say something because uh, because we just don't know. But I think, you know, uh, to your point and maybe getting into chapter three here, um, we are, are, you know, part of the reason that these cyber types show up is that it's about importing what we already know into a new use case. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, so, so, you know, evoking similar structures like quantum leap, jumping into the body of another person and trying to live your life as that kind of person, then running into, uh, different walls or gates or whatever around that, that's kind of like being on the internet. Um, but then in chapter three here, she gives us a much more, I think, um, 
close reading oriented accounting of specifically the construction of um, Asianness and and blackness, I would say, are the two kind of specific modes here uh, in cyberspace and in, in kind of theorizations of cyberspace in fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna, know, so, so so what are the cyber types we're bringing with us? Oh, and this allows us to talk about everyone's favorite subject in chapter four: cyberpunk. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love uh, cyberpunk. That's my favorite. My favorite thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone online can't get enough cyberpunk. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I say this like the chapter is boring. It is not. Um, I'm just thinking like, <laughs> man, 20 years ago when it was interesting uh, to be able to to talk about cyberpunk rather than like whatever mm-hmm. endless debates we're running through on social media today. I would love for anyone who is going to tweet has think who is thinking about tweeting about cyberpunk and its politics or what it does or does not do. It would be great if you would read chapter three of this book. It would be a, <laughs> the next time you start talking about like, well, here is how like Japanese and like Anglophone cyberpunk are the same or how they're different or whatever. Yes, like absolutely. Please read this because she she gives us a pretty good archive, right? She she kind of hits. She does the major hits. We get Blade Runner. We get Neuromancer. We get Snow Crash. And we get the Matrix, right? The, the hits as of, you know, 2002. But um I, I mean, what's the other hit that you would put in there? Uh, Ghost in the Shell? Akira? Yeah, like, you know yeah what I mean? maybe like, like Ghost in the Shell, something by Bruce Sterling. I don't know, but like. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> the intro to Mirror Shades. Yeah, there's, I mean, but, but, you know, aesthetic object wise, mm-hmm. especially like aesthetic objects written by people in uh, the United States. Um, this is kind of it, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, so like this, this chapter is it. it carries forward a lot of the concerns uh that we've talked about so far because obviously the if you have been paying attention like the the anachronistic or antiquated images of like japanese or asian people that show up online um have a very long history in cyberpunk as a genre or very long well let's say long enough uh uh because we begin with blade runner and how uh, nakamura's essential argument right is that um the big big well she she pulls this also i think from greta new uh in her uh the term is techno orientalism how ridley scott in that film chooses to signify that the future is here is that he makes future america look uh very influenced by the japan of 200 years before the time period of the film yeah, and she she gives us a pretty good play by play of this too. That that we're you know we're obviously in the, in the show here, not going to go through moment by moment. But yeah, exactly as you said, right? The the kind of imagery of uh, Japanese ness, right? Uh, especially, I mean, think about the big you know moving billboard of the geisha selling uh-huh. pills or whatever. I mean, that's what she talks about specifically. I- exactly this kind of this um, uh, older Japanese ness. That mm-hmm. is the future of America because we're that future of America is so ingrained in Japanese culture at that point. It's kind of the causality is very unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, and she folds this in with a uh, William Gibson quote, right, about why all of his books always end up intersecting with Japan in some way. And he says it's from a, an article he wrote, I think, for The New York Times or something like that. 
And uh, Gibson says, well, the reason Japan always shows up is that Japan is happening in the present, but it always seems to be the image of the future. And Nakamura says, well, you're responsible for creating the image of the future <laughs> yeah. as a science fiction writer. So why, you know, you can't you can't be like, well, I don't know why, how that happened. Yeah, yeah there's, there's like a bizarre, like uh, uh, a bizarre, like. The, the the underpinnings of that quote are kind of like neil stevenson has or not neil stevenson i'm sorry i was thinking about him because he's going to come up but it's like yeah. gibson looked into a crystal ball saw the future and was just like i can't i can't help it I, if i'm writing the future i gotta write it this way <laughs> yeah but but i do think and this is a, an argument that that i've never really come upon before but i find it very compelling but, but that that Japan signifies the future in this weird time loop thing. So the way that both of these texts, like for Blade Runner and Neuromancer and, and Ridley Scott and uh, William Gibson, how they work is it's an oxymoron, right? That that mm -hmm. the Japan is the future, so the future looks like Japan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Japan's past would inevitably impact on that future. And so we have to delve from the archive of stereotypical images of Japan in order to signify in the future that this is, in fact, Japan. So it's like all of these weird context collapses that are happening all at one time. Um, but again, that just figures the way that cyber typing works, right? So when you're in Lambda Mu and you encounter that wandering samurai, which is the exact same maneuver, right? This kind mm -hmm. of weird orientalist past of Japan being summoned into the present mechanically, right? Or kind of in the moment of experience, the same thing that's happening aesthetically and narratively within Blade Runner and Neuromancer is what's happening every day at Lambda Mu, uh, in every day in kind of Asian representation, um, and, and specifically in these cases, Japanese representation within popular culture and in, in, in the Internet. And, you know, I, I don't want to summon it up to 2021 too much, but this is the exact same critique being levied, levied against uh, cyberpunk that just came out. So this remains wholly unchanged. Mm -hmm. um, this is the same shit that we're living in. You could just find replace some of these examples with things from the past 20 years. And this chapter could have been written last year. Mm -hmm. it, it really is kind of astonishing. Yeah, it, it it is interesting, like how completely ossified cyberpunk is, was, became whatever, mm -hmm. um, especially even as, uh, you know, the 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 texts we have here blade runner neuromancer snow crash the matrix all kind of develop and build on each other in certain ways um but i guess let's talk about neuromancer what do we have to say about neuromancer uh the uh, zaibatsu's yes <laughs> um so yeah so her, her reading of neuromancer is that um that the, the kind of cornerstone of the global economy and this kind of amorphous villainous um, you know, entity is the Japanese corporation, the kind of Zaibatsu, um, you know, this, this entity that one gives one life's over to, or one gives one's life over to. And uh, so, so it's this kind of like amorphous Asian and specifically Japanese, um, you know, uh, shadow economy villain thing. But mm -hmm. also the kind of secondary read she makes is that uh, in Neuromancer, 
Asians and people of Asian descent don't show up, really. They're not mm -hmm. really characters in the way that, you know, Case is a character or that Molly Millions is a character or whatever. They're mm -hmm. always intermediators. Mm -hmm. So they are uh, assassins, right? The Japanese fat-grown assassin. Mm -hmm. Or they're the creators of the technology that, that Case uses to, to interact with uh, the Matrix, right, with, with the Internet. Um, and so, so Asian is, is fully... Um, this world is fully suffused with Asianness and Asian influence, but it is never figured right as as individuals, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, similar to Blade Runner, where yeah, you know, we have this very uh, Japanese future, but uh, I think. <sighs> I'm trying to think, is there any character in Blade Runner I haven't watched in a while who is like a who might be called like a major character? Because I think it's the same thing. They're mediators, right? It's like it's people on mm -hmm. the street. It's like the guy who's in the noodle shop. Um, that sort of well, thing. Well, so there's the guy who makes the eyeballs. Oh, that's right. right. But I but again, he's a he's a mediator, right? He's literally a plot mediator. He is someone who Roy Batty shows up to kill mm -hmm. in order to kind of get to the next guy up the ladder. So um, I, I think that kind of reading, even though she doesn't take it to that point, I think that reading still stands. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the thing that I will say, you know, and, and I think that, uh, we, you know, there are a thousand criticisms to be made in Neuromancer. It is really interesting that she reads the Zaibatsu as kind of the cornerstone or kind of the, the, the end boss, as it were of of neuromancer mm -hmm. because neuromancer ends with you know european royalty uh eating itself in space <laughs> yeah i was I, I i was looking at your notes and i'm glad you brought that up because i was thinking like man it's been a while since i read neuromancer but i remember and i i i, I take her point about uh uh like what what nakamura is reading there but i was thinking like isn't like sort of actually the 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 final villain in neuromancer uh uh, the Tessier Ashpool people, right? Who are what, yeah. you, what you said, right? Straight up, like the the oldest of old money. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think, I, I mean, I still think she's right. I mean, yeah. even if I quibble on the you know kind of finality of it, because even that is facilitated through a kind of transnational Asianness, exactly. And I think it's even more kind of pronounced across the rest of the Sprawl trilogy. In which, um, you know, Asian uh, bioscientists and uh, Asian corporations, Ibatsus, all these different things, Japanese corporations, those become even more um, present and um, and particularly figured as uh, like uh, authority, like mm -hmm. authority itself turns into this kind of. J Japanese corporatocracy uh, across the rest of those books. So, so I think that it's, you know, I, I know we want to detract from that, but I do think that there's some interesting tension going on between the way that Neuromancer actually ends versus the way that she kind of characterizes it. And I think that actually just proves to prove her point more than, than um, the kind of example that she uses. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not disagreeing with Nakamura. I think she's right, but I think it's even maybe sharper than, than she gives it credit for. Mm -hmm. uh, um, snow crash by neil stevenson mm -hmm. uh it, it innovates we might say on the formula or or challenges the cyberpunk formula up until this point um by foregrounding issues uh well foregrounding issues of race is maybe putting it a little bit stronger than it warrants <laughs> but um race exists and like they're like the the protagonist of snow crash hero protagonist <laughs> is uh -huh. <laughs> is is mixed race right he is he is um uh 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 ja he's japanese and american right he's a uh his father was like a, a a black american soldier i think yep yep uh so 
Right. Um, and uh, the other thing about Stevenson, right, is is that in Snow Crash, uh, he, the the version of cyberpunk that he imagines is one that is very forth, upright and forthright, up, upright, forthright about its racism, um, because you have like specifically like white supremacist, uh, like micro nation states. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. If you haven't read Snow Crash, like nation states are gone. Imagine if everything was kind of like a uh, a. Uh, uh, a weird little like subdivision or like this is what this is this is what the 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 white supremacist uh micro states are right are like these weird like corporatized like enclaves where uh you know uh it, it, there are like signs up that just say like you know no blacks allowed uh and be because there's no government right like there's nothing there's no federal government stepping in and uh enforcing any of this everything is left up to market forces and this this uh uh ceaseless churning of like different weird little uh groups is is the result and some of those groups are explicitly like racialist in their thinking yeah and they're gated communities explicitly yes. Uh, yes. and so it's like you know there's uh snow crash is often talked about the way that nakamura puts it in this uh, book is that it's part of the quote-unquote second generation of cyberpunk right mm -hmm. some people call it post-cyberpunk um, but I think no matter the, how you how you cut it or the way you do it, there's some very clear parody that's going on in Snow Crash, right? It is responsive to both uh, cyberpunk itself and to, like, culture at the time. And, well, uh, you know, Stevenson is directly saying that gated communities and kind of white flight, uh, if you let market forces take that as far as they could possibly go, you're going to end up with an apartheid state. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, uh, it's the the racial makeup of this world is right in your face it is not it is multicultural in the sense that multiple cultural cultures exist but it is multiculturalism that has a wide swath of the world that is explicitly white supremacist um and hero protagonist is like using you know double samurai swords uh -huh. double katanas to like cut through all of that mm -hmm. um you know it's the most video game ass video game character on the planet yeah um and uh then we have the matrix mm -hmm. which gets probably the longest reading uh which makes sense <laughs> for for 2002 uh especially um and sort of you know uh reading the nakamura's reading of the matrix uh, uh, essentially right as something that i think should be pr pretty familiar to anyone online because the i think we've seen sort of different versions of this there's a tweet, right? And I don't mean like a specific tweet. I'm not calling someone out, but like, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say like, oh, the, the type of post where someone's like, you know, the Matrix was low key, really subversive because it was about uh, a, a bunch of like a, a sort of multiracial coalition fighting a bunch of identical white guys. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's that. And, that, and that's not even to say that that is necessarily a bad argument, but like, that is like Nakamura is doing like the first version of that or like one yeah. of the first versions, the academic version where she lays out like here is how we can read all this. Here's how it types uh, ties into uh, uh, the the way that the, the film is imagining uh, race and so on. Yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. And, and <laughs> I mean, it's always funny to me, too, because that that kind of tweet generally when I see it right kind of goes with the assumption that like. The Wachowskis didn't know that they were doing right, that, right? right. Which, uh, the, the ensuing 20 years has made painfully clear that they knew what they were doing, um, that, that they do that. And it, it is so fascinating to me how this, this argument works, right? Um, 
because uh, uh, especially the reading of Switch here, uh-huh. did you did you pick up on this? So we yeah, know, right? Yeah. Especially with last year, all the kind of um, 20th anniversary stuff. Um, oh, I guess we should say too, right? That the uh, the Wachowskis are getting uh, they're they are dead named in this book, but they are dead named in this book uh, because it was written 20 years uh, you know mm-hmm. ago. And it was written contemporary with the film. And so if you go in and you start seeing, uh, you know, the not their current names, uh, you know, that's why this book, it's not like uh, academic books don't get updated in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, although what if they were? I mean, they might be. That would be, good. that would be good. We should think about it. Mm-hmm. Publishers of the world who listen, you should think about ways of being able to do that. But anyway, I just want to lay that out for people in case, uh, you know, that that. Uh, just so they know. But what's so fa- fascinating to me is that uh, she's is on page 75. Nakamura is like, Switch is clearly coded as queer, having uh-huh. short and spiky hair. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and we found out in the ensuing time, right, uh, that uh, Switch was initially meant to be a trans character. Mm-hmm. And the studio basically said no. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was like kind of too far um, for you know, audience buy-in or something. I don't know, you know, whatever horseshit excuse there was for it. Um, but, uh, but it's really funny to me how kind of, um, queer aesthetics of the, you know, of the early two thousands eat the kind of visual signifiers or the intended visual signifiers of transness here, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, so do, do we want to get like more into a reading of the matrix? Cause essentially, right. It, it is what I just said, which is uh, mm-hmm. that thing, the, the type of thing where someone mistakes like, oh, the su- like, I just realized that films have subtext, right? That it's not just <laughs> yeah. like a description of events happening, but that, that there are like, you know, claims and politics encoded into it. Um, and she sort of and Nakamura, uh, you know, goes through and lays out, uh, you know, the Zion is this sort of multiracial coalition. Um, the the sort of reality of uh, the world is marked by or it is indicated by the presence of race. Um, yeah. And I, well, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, so I think that that, you know, uh, she lays out that whole big argument. But, yeah, that's the big kind of innovation here, I would say, or the big kind of turn is that Nakamura doesn't stop with that tweet, right? Uh-huh, Which right. is like, like the tweet would have you believe like, oh yeah, there's the, you know, it's this multiracial coalition. They're defeating these white men. There's a politics to that, obviously, and that's good. Um, Nakamura says, okay, well, here's the thing. Uh-huh. Um, if anything can change when you go into the matrix, why don't race and gender change? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, one of the explanations that we just talked about is that the studio wouldn't allow gender to change. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that we could read race that way, maybe, uh, in the sense that that would also fit under the same kind of corporate excuse mm-hmm. for why that wouldn't happen, that the, the Wachowskis have since laid out for us. The, but the other thing I would say is that we, the Wachowskis have also revealed to us why this does not work um, with their film, Cloud Atlas, <laughs> that has people changing race regularly throughout the, the, mm-hmm. um, the film. And that's because it is deeply offensive to many people yeah (laughs) and maybe and and that's not to say you can't do it you can just cast other actors for when they're in in the matrix versus when they're not or whatever i think that that's easily solved in a kind of conceptual way although maybe generating audience buy-in might be you know difficult for that as well but it's fascinating to me that nakamura writes this and then the wachowskis have experimented with it you know Mm -hmm. kind of uh and tried to see and tried to make it work and i think maybe even cloud atlas has gender changing in it too or or recasting around gender um 
but but I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I can't I can't definitively say that. But anyway, so she says, you know, as as you kind of lay out there, that um, the the real interesting part of the of the Matrix is not just in the kind of political. A struggle that's being represented, but what cannot change in a world in which everything is changeable, that race functions as a kind of cornerstone for this digital world, that, that when you make the jump from one real world, quote unquote, to a fictional world, to a world of self-representation, you still bring race with you. Uh, in the in the matrix and this is exactly how we've read about cyber types throughout this whole book so far right that mm -hmm. when you jump into the digital world when you jump into lambda Mu or ultima online or any other kind of online space you still bring race with you um it might be distorted and it might work differently and it might operate in different ways but it's it's still making the leap and it's getting represented in, in different kinds of ways and ultimately this kind of culminates in a reading of the oracle as uh, a kind of racial stereotype herself, right? As mm -hmm. a lower class black woman who is matronly and, um, you know, soulful, right? We can start mm -hmm. imagining all these kind of stereotypes who takes care of a bunch of children, um, which I think there's probably more to dig through in this. I, you know, I, I think there's probably an oppositional reading of the Oracle Mm -hmm. that one could produce. And I, don't, I, and I don't know which of these is quote unquote right. I think maybe both are equally correct or at least equally um, um, compelling, which is that what if the most powerful being in the universe is a working class black woman? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that might be an interesting science fiction concept in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately her critique here is that, uh, that you go into the digital world or these characters go into the digital world of the matrix and what they find there is a black woman who is a stock character, essentially mm -hmm. who then serves a very stock character kind of guiding role. Um, and I think that, you know, if you've seen the matrix, it's very easy to see this critique and understand how it operates. And then she says, ultimately Morpheus ends up in the same position mm -hmm. that uh, as a kind of guiding fatherly figure uh, who fits into a very well-worn set of stereotypes for a multiracial neo, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 Keanu Reeves. I don't know. Why I couldn't come up with his name in the 1990s. Lots made of of um, Keanu Reeves's multiracial uh, mm -hmm. identity, and, uh, and and so ultimately, she says, well, what happens at the end of the film is even though there is this kind of big, broad coalition of people fighting, you know, kind of this robotic white man um, and and all of its power. At the end of the day, all, those people are wiped off the map, and there is a uh, uh, multiracial, all-powerful dude. There is a white woman, and there is a black man who is like the father figure, mm -hmm. and that ultimately kind of reasserts a structure of that we're already very familiar with. So even this film that presents a scenario in which we might escape still kind of regrounds itself in racial stereotyping. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I think what's interesting here too, I guess this is another, you know, look, I'm sorry. I work in science fiction. Mm -hmm. I talk about the matrix a lot. Uh, it's interesting to me that Nakamura asserts here. Um, this is on like 82 or 83 that all of the non-whites or the majority of them in the, in the plot are killed by the plot. Like specifically she says the plot, but it's not really the plot. It's the one white dude mm -hmm. who does it. And that to me also seems to have a politics to it. Uh, that's just as kind of, um, pointed as the rest of the movie, but that, that doesn't get, um, kind of addressed here. 
And uh, yeah, anyway, that's the, the kind of big critique here is that, or the, the big movement reading that ultimately we can read the, the matrix in this one politically liberatory way, but to do so and to do that uncritically might miss how it uh, actually regrounds a bunch of the same things that we see happening all the time on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brings us into the fourth chapter. Uh, where do you want to go today? Cybernetic tourism, the internet and transnationality. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, but this is kind of this is back to the advertisements issue um, that we mm-hmm. talked about at the beginning. Uh, and it is a relatively brief chapter. Uh, and it it is uh, another another set of series of advertisements um, that Nakamura reads through and basically does what she's done with a, a lot of these advertisements up to this point is, uh, you know, unpack how they are. uh present like how they are on the one hand assuaging sort of fears about a networked uh globe right um i'm sort of like this idea that uh people are being pulled together and we're being pulled into close contact and what does that mean for me and my identity and whatever um how they're assuaging those fears uh on the one hand through kind of a bright uh uh fun humorous disposition so like one of the sets she talks about uh, are these ibm ads that i actually remember um the the big example is uh like a, a a man on a camel uh like it's a it's a print ad right and it's like a uh i think it's an arab man on a camel um like again very very uh like traditional stereotypical to a american audience uh, uh vision and it's uh, captioned something, some bizarre thing, like, let's head back and download the latest equestrian race reports or something. It specifically Finally. has to, it, it has to do specifically with like, <laughs> da- like downloading the results of like the latest horse races. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the man is talking to the camel or the camel is talking to him. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> uh the this is a whole series of ads and it's the same kind of thing where it's like a sort of stereotypical image of of an other and then uh a sort of like incongruous wacky caption about the what if this person like what if this monk in tibet read email um (laughs) and and sort of you know treating that as in and of itself like oh surprising that uh, uh people in other countries are using computers but we don't have to worry because they still look the same that they've always looked <laughs> they're mm-hmm. still they're still doing the same things they've always done um and so you know the 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 like what because like what is happening here is IBM then gets to position itself as kind of the lingua franca right this is this is the the benefit for these tech companies is that they're the ones who are on the one hand, bringing us all together, but on the other hand, making sure we're all kept very distinct in the same as we have always been. Yeah. And aesthetics are being key to it, right? And so you can uh-huh. really see, I, I, I think it is, it, this book is put together so elegantly in that Nakamura is not, you know, kind of constantly reasserting, like, uh, she's not making the same point over and over again. She just keeps giving examples that if you keep the main argument of the book in mind, you're like, yep, this is the same thing as that other thing. Right. So like Mm -hmm. the way the matrix thinks about this problem is actually the same way that, uh, you know, this advertisement about for IBM, you know, situates this problem. They do both function in a very similar aesthetic register and they do both 
import this aesthetic ideology directly into you know internet rhetoric it's i think it is just such a uh, i i am deeply envious i think i've said this a few times on this podcast but i'm just deeply envious of this type of writing whereas i i feel like i would have to and and you know i'm in the middle of writing a manuscript or a little bit further than in the middle of writing a manuscript right now and i i just look at this and i think god i cannot i'll never be able to write this well <laughs> i'll never be able to put anything together this well that just just so clearly makes the kind of golden thread clear without having to constantly reassert linguistically about what i'm talking about um i I don't know i just you know as i said deeply envious of the writing Mm -hmm. um oh i i will say though i didn't write any notes about this chapter because uh there there is additional kind of development here of the tourist you know Mm -hmm. back to those previous chapters but beyond this kind of like um visual parsing of the world and then how that gets eaten by the internet i that's kind of all everything that's going on here Mm mm-hmm uh yeah uh i i think uh if i'm going to pull out like just a key quote this is just from this chapter from page 88 the Mm -hmm. supposedly liberal and progressive tone of this ad and that could really apply to almost any of the ads she discusses camouflages its depiction of race as something to be eliminated or made not to count through technology right um that uh this is the other way of reading uh, uh, the juxtapositions of of race and ethnicity and uh, uh, culture and contemporary technologies in the other ads, where again the, the, the this is how these these are the companies that are uh, like technology doesn't really uh, uh, ma- it like race doesn't matter we all use technology we're all using it in the same way right it treats us all equally right that's the other sort of uh, a way that this is getting uh, spun here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have sort of the the last full chapter, uh, the one that I said that I I'll repeat. I think uh, if you're looking for something to excerpt for, I would say even like an, an undergraduate classroom, I think this uh, would work really well, um, because mm-hmm. even if uh, even if the internet is very very different, like the way that she is that she talks about in this chapter, menu driven identities making race happen online, um. This is a thing that I think everyone is very conscious of now, or not everyone, right? I'm speaking very generally, um, but this is there are still drop down menus on profiles, and like we're we're still constantly having to sign up for things and fill out profiles, and uh, she looks at how these particular ways uh, do race, or how how these particular ways, how these particular things do race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This I I agree a hundred percent. And because this whole chapter, in a broad sense, is about how does web design interface mm-hmm. racialize people, mm-hmm. and, and ask you to opt in to perhaps certain racial identities that you might not find encompass you entirely, mm-hmm. and and that you know as we've talked about the whole time that that happens because the the kind of underlying assumption is no race, which is an implied whiteness. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else just is typified on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, being able to self-identify or, or being able to navigate, for example, uh, what she brings up several times in this chapter is Asian American specifically as mm-hmm. as a uh, identity that is complicated, right? There, <laughs> I don't know if people know this, Asia is pretty big uh-huh. <laughs> and so is America. And so, you know, what it means to be a, um, you know, first generation Filipino American who lives in the American South is very different than being a first generation Japanese American who lives in Washington. Right. Um, you know, those are radically different things. And yet, 
um, even at the level of just identifying as Asian or as identifying as Caucasian, for example, or, or getting granularity of Asian American, all of those are things that you would select in a box, right? It's mm-hmm. like a checkbox that then entrain you into certain ways of being um, talked to on the internet or being addressed on the internet that will never get to your actual real world, real, real world experience. And I'm not saying anything that anyone in any of the identity categories doesn't know. I'm just laying out the argument that she's uh-huh. making. I'm not trying to educate anyone on this. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's not why I'm kind of recounting this, but, but that's the kind of key, the, the, the first um, uh, claim of this chapter, right? That is how the internet imagines race as a series of checkboxes and obviously, real-world race is so much more complicated than that. So then, therefore, uh, what are the avenues that people have to navigate this? And what are the ways that they are prevented from navigating it? You mm-hmm. know, what are the kind of um, uh, uh, interface design structures that prevent them from doing that? So, for example, this is something I found fascinating, right? She has to explain. She says, you know... Um, uh, what, what is it excite what yes. is the yes so so excite is a portal driven internet access mechanism do do people still know what portals are so that's exactly what right? i'm trying i'm trying to like run through my head of like how to explain this right so so like when you signed into aol is the one i'm familiar with right but it's a similar deal i actually can i say something just to set the yeah, stage absolutely. here yes please do so before like modern search engines existed uh if you weren't on the internet at this time or if somehow you've forgotten um it like before like you know google or whatever comes along it was actually a lot of work like looking for things on the internet and a lot of places would kind of try to mediate that experience for you by putting together uh basically ready-made lists of interesting or like worthwhile resources about various topics yes right that is that is sort of the the need on the early internet that gives rise to the portal as as a platform or as a as a feature right so now you can continue (laughs) yeah so so if you don't know you know if you don't know how to navigate your way to some specific subcultural website the portals kind of step in right in order to facilitate your use of the internet and you might eventually navigate yourself to these like disparate websites right that are being held up but importantly the internet especially at this time as nakamura points out is in flux you know she Mm -hmm. says for an internet for a website to exist for a full year is (laughs) is like astonishing um and you know she says that the reason that net noir is so um it's a venerable website because it's existed for five years Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so we have to think too about this kind of the flux of the internet at this time too. She also says that to fully navigate the internet, you have to be an expert in different forms of of kind of mediation control, right? You have to know how to navigate to the exact website you want to go to, and you have to know how to you know interact with these portals to get to what the majority of people are doing. So that's all to say, right, um, uh, that that just accessing and thinking with the Internet and using the Internet is this kind of multimodal process. And that's what she's trying to get at uh, in this chapter around race, that that multimodality and the way that it's constructed visually for us, right, the way that the web pages are constructed has a racial set of assumptions in it. So she's talking about Excite, this web portal, and she's talking about the Asian American. It's Asian American specifically, right? Uh, um, yes. 
um, that which is its like own little like sub portal, uh-huh. and that Asian American has a bunch of different web pages on it. Well, right? uh, so, uh, so just the the actual yeah. the the prelude here is that she tries searching for race, and what she gets are uh, yes. results about horse races. So this all comes back the previous chapter. Ah, oh, here's why the request screen results are are here. So that's yeah. what that's what actually using the search engine gets you. So then she goes to the the like it's like the cultures and groups section of of their portal. Yes, a hundred percent. But but gets her to sub portals and those sub portals. Even though she's able to use, I think she's using Netscape at this point. Uh huh. She think. she's able to she's able to open multiple windows. Right, so she's able to yes. look at Japaneseness and uh, you know Filipinoness, these like different kind of web pages for those different identity categories. She's able to open different windows, but she can't ever see a web page that addresses both of those together or in tandem or relationship to one another. They are you know think about a decision tree, right? There's like mm-hmm. you know it's like uh, identity and then race, and then racial categorization, and then racial categorization underneath asian Americanness being like 10 or 15 other tendrils. And those tendrils never touch one another. And so she says, you know, even the navigation of the website has this kind of checkbox functionality. The way that she is able to understand herself as raced in this context is through mutually exclusive kind of subcategories and not as mutually reinforcing or mutually communicatory different racial patterns, mm-hmm. right? Everything is its own different thing. Uh, there's no, she, she brings in uh, Anzal Dua's work on the, the kind of uh, mestiza uh, uh, um, uh, hybridized uh, identity category, mm-hmm. right? And she says there's no universe for that within the hierarchy based navigation of the, of the internet at this time. And within the ways that the internet's going to ask you to identify yourself if you're like filling in a profile or something like that. Um, and so, so, so for her, the very infrastructure of the way that we visually and textually navigate the space of the internet just as users already contains a very um, hard line and separated out understanding of race that doesn't have any room for for the real world complexity that we have right and so what is interesting about that is that uh i mean the point that she makes right is that these are things that have been designed by other people for us like quote unquote right like for the users right these are things being designed kind of on the on the back end of of the web page of the portal what have you um and that's where kind of some of these the, these very uh, this logic uh, where things cannot uh, intersect, right? Where there can be no the, the term that she uses is hybridity, right? The that that hype as if like you know things that's as if these categories do not uh, cross each other in in the actual world. Um, these web pages are designed in such a way to suggest uh, both a a. Uh, a strict kind of like logic of categorization, um, but also a kind of uh, a pretense toward totality. Maybe that's not mm-hmm. her term. That's me like trying to come up with something, right? Uh, but the idea that this can be systematized in the form of a web page uh, is challenged for Nakamura, and I think this is like this is again like this is one of my favorite chapters in the book, um, and this turn is so fascinating. Uh, this is challenged by email forwards. Which mm-hmm. uh, 
this this particular genre of email forward must still exist, right? There, the, I, I people are still forwarding like uh, uh, joke emails. But the thing that also that struck me was that uh, this is like one of the functions that Facebook took away from email, um, of like yeah. sending sending all the all the funny jokes to your friends. Now it's just like meme pages sharing things. Yeah, it is interesting. I I thought that too, and then but then I kind of thought about like you know my I, I, my grandmother's on Facebook and she's uh-huh. an old she's an old white woman, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and and I think that's also true. You know, there's like a huge chunk of like what she shares is like like pictures from the 1940s and it's like how things used to be right the, <laughs> <Or whatever. laughs> who among who among my facebook friends can remember what this is and it's a picture it, of an ice cube tray exactly exactly so that's like a big part but there are still like you you know you grew up you know you grew up in the south when or you know uh you know who can remember this that the who can remember this is a huge genre but mm-hmm. but sometimes they will be just lists of shit, like just <laughs> random stuff of like, who can remember having to, to fetch water from the creek? And it's like, <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like, I don't you know, like I, I know where you grew up and I don't think you had to fetch water from the creek. But uh, I, although, I mean, it, she is from a very rural area. So mm-hmm. some of the things are true. But that's also kind of what um, Nakamura talks about. Right. Is that. Uh, these emails, they're like big old lists. She talks about the, what is the name of this uh, email? Like a uh, hundred and one ways you it, know you're Japanese American. Yeah, a hundred and one ways to know you're Japanese American. And she reprints the whole email in in like the whole list in the in the book, um, which is beneficial. It because is I would never thing. have been able to find this if if not for the reprint. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's fascinating um, because she's so. She says she's going to go to this because uh, she she wants to look at what she calls out of the way corners of the web uh, to see um, more kind of grassroots engagement with with race and uh, making more grassroots engagement with making race happen online, essentially. Um, And something I would just flag is like this is absolutely like, you know, one of the types of moves that Kashana Gray makes in intersectional tech, right? Looking at the more out of the way corners like uh, uh, group chats and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that there are still kind of these pockets of uh, personal space online um, where uh, this sort of stuff can be talked about and worked out uh, in ways sort of away from uh, whatever the, the, the hegemonic discourse is. Mm-hmm. So, um, she has this whole list, right? It's and it's 101 things like just and it's it's very uh, diverse. Uh, and pe- she talks about how, you know, people who send this on might edit it. They might add things to it, um, things of that nature. Uh, but what is sort of important about it is that because it is kind of uh, this document that gets revised by the people who are sending it about who it is about right it is it mm-hmm. they are writing it it is about them they are editing it they are sending it to each other um you get a lot of really uh sort of interesting kind of like uh consequences or knock-on effects uh one of them is that uh she she notices when she's looking through you know who has received this forward because you can always see that stuff in the header or whatever 
uh, she notices people who she doesn't think are Japanese American, right? Like based on uh, their names or, or whatever. And she ends up asking some of her friends who she sees have like sent it to other people, you know, like, oh, who who is this? Who did you send this to? And it's people like, you know, my partner who is not Japanese American, but like he, you know, lives with me and like is around my family and uh, comes to know this culture in a way that, you know, I think that he would appreciate some of this stuff, right? Things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then there's also uh, the idea that every, of all the people who read this, um, you know, of all the, the Japanese American uh, uh, people who are receiving this email and reading it, nobody, she says, nobody but nobody is going to recognize and relate to every single one. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that is why there are 101 ways, because it acknowledges uh, sort of the, the the variety or the difference that comes even in uh, the the experience of being a Japanese American. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And reading the list is it it really is kind of fascinating to to read through it. And I encourage you, if you read the book, like don't skim through it, really mm -hmm. read it, because uh, a her. I think her analysis is really, really strong if, you, if you're really familiar with the list that you just read. But also, it, it is fascinating to me what here is kind of transcultural mm -hmm. um, in the sense that like, I can be like, oh, yeah, that's like me. <laughs> like, like, I'm a white guy. I do that. <laughs> um, and, and what is like so clearly, you know, very, very ethnically specific, right? So like, mm -hmm. um, so, so 21, you own a multicolored lime green polyester patchwork quilt. And so, like that, that's like what's fascinating is for like this intergroup, right, of Japanese Americans who are sending this around. That's like they're like, oh yeah, that's us, right? Yeah. Like that's us who have that. And uh, 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 forty six, you fight fiercely for the check after dinner, right? And mm -hmm. so these are like aesthetic qualifiers, they're cultural qualifiers, right? Like come to the American South uh, and and you know try to pay for for dinner over someone else and see how that goes out for you. Right. Like that's a, that is a cultural, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? That's, there's some cultural pu push and pull around men paying for dinner. Mm -hmm. Certainly. You know, that, that is the email forward list is kind of the counter example to the uh, people like the people making race happen, uh, as opposed to it kind of being designed into the system, uh, in whatever way, uh, and I don't know, is there anything else we want to say more about that or other than other than I feel like uh, um, one thing that I think is interesting here is that she is talking about email and she kind of has to defend the choice to talk about email uh, because uh, it is, I guess uh, it's seen as sort of the the lower version of the web, right? Because the web is, the web is now, you know, it's, it's the late nineties, early two thousands. Everything's graphical. We can play midis now if we let the page sit for five minutes. Um, but, uh, she's, she, uh, kind of has this interesting moment where she argues against, uh, what seems to be a, a potential fissure emerging in, in the study of digital culture of, um, people maybe wanting to not look at, things that had been around because email has been around with the internet for a while. Um, and so it seems like, uh, that's that, that is at risk of being discounted in lieu of sort of whatever new developments are going on. So I just think that's interesting for kind of historical reasons. Um, and she says we shouldn't be sort of reproducing, uh, the old style of like high culture, low culture divide, uh, that, uh, the Academy was just, you know, 
up to the gills with uh, uh, at its founding um, because the legend, she says the legibility and accessibility of various types of culture of objects of art, so on um, is always mediated by material and racialized conditions. Um, and then she also says it is naive to expect that corporations in the mainstream media complex will produce the kind of interfaces or content that reflect a non-commodified style of racial diversity. Um, because, uh, sort of following up on what we were talking about with like menus, uh, she talks about a couple of those club connect websites. One is called, um, eight, these are also just like such incredibly nineties, uh, website names uh asianavenue.com um and uh like blackplanet.com mm -hmm. which are websites run by club connect uh they're you know like sort of social and networking sites specifically for um you know people of different races and ethnicities uh and the sort of consequence of these she says right is that people go to these websites they make their profiles they put in all of their information you know their names and their education where they live and so on um, and she says, you know, like what this really does actually is it provides the the company that runs this website with a lot of demographic data that results in new markets that can be targeted by advertising. Mm -hmm. And it's just like straight up like, oh, right. The thing that is now like what the Internet is. Yeah, she I the I, again, you know, the. uh the pithiness of of her writing in some of these places the kind of sloganeering that she does and mm -hmm. again i'm saying these things that are normally used as like negative terms i'm not using that at all i mean it's just so evocative i, I really think it's a positive but uh yeah she she writes quote these sites want to know what you are so they can best figure out how what they can sell you mm -hmm. and like that you know that's the that's the reason for the siloing right mm -hmm. And, you know, this isn't called out in this book or this lineage isn't placed in, but but you can put this in a trajectory from the 1970s and 80s, the rise of the Enthusiast magazine. Um, mm. You know, the reason that we have the video game magazine, you yeah. know, to take, bring it back to game studies, is that in the 70s and 80s, uh, magazine publishers realized that you could create extremely niche you know, woodworkers magazine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Southern living, <laughs> these kinds of things. You can create these magazines that have pretty limited readerships in the sense of like, they, they're not as engaging to a wide group of people as People or Vogue or something like that. Um, or, you know, uh, a Life magazine. Mm -hmm. But they exist because you can get a better ad rate um, for advertisements because you've identified the thing that woodworkers are going to be reading. And so you can charge a better rate for ads for woodworking focused stuff. And in fact, can get a wider array of advertisements for it um, based on how thinly you've sliced uh, this, this uh, thing in, uh, you know, this part of the world, um, you know, go to any big box store and look at the magazines, really look at them. And you still see these like the, this economy, even though it's widely contracted, you know, in the past 20 years since the rise of the Internet, um, it still exists, certainly. Um, and so, I mean, this is just the kind of reproduction of that logic into the Internet world of, uh, you know, we can find uh, a, a, if we can determine exactly who you are and how you operate. And more importantly, if we can entrain you into a particular way of understanding yourself, then we can, um, you know, advertise to you better. We can sell you stuff more efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a, anything else you wanted to say about the last chapter? Or should we just sort of move into the conclusion? As I said earlier in the show, there is a kind of nostalgia in our current time, right? 2021 mm -hmm. 
for like this time of the internet. And I think what this chapter really demonstrates is that this time before, you know, social media appeared and ruined everything and then split us off into all these different kind of like weirdly siloed, easily advertised, uh, you know, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter feeds. Um, this was already happening. It, mm -hmm. the, the minute that the internet became accessible to more than 1% of 1% of the population, this began. And to have nostalgia for this kind of time period, and, and it's really funny too to, to hear people have nostalgia for like the 2000, you know, uh, 2005 to 2010 kind of period of the blogosphere or whatever uh, as a more liberatory time than the one we live in. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe qualitatively it's a little bit more liberatory, but conceptually, I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if it was any more quote unquote free um, when it comes to identity formation and how you understand yourself. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting kind of here at the, the end of the, the chapter. Mm -hmm. Conclusion, keeping it virtually real, Michael. Yeah, uh, this is kind of just uh, th this is like the contemplative chapter, I guess, is what I would call it, because it's kind mm -hmm. of uh, she reflects on uh, like the state of digital studies in the academy. And well, actually, what's really interesting is she starts out uh, by by highlighting that uh, like the Internet and hip hop enter kind of mass cultural consciousness in America um, at, and also kind of the academy as objects of study at about the same time, um, mm -hmm. which is like that is interesting, right? Because uh, the similar debates end up happening around both of them uh, about uh, like identity and sort of legitimacy as as medium or as media or as forms um, and sort of like the the troubles that both hip hop and the internet pose to disciplinary boundaries and of course um uh hip hop <laughs> has a huge race component uh and so where is kind of the uh the 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 race component when we're talking about the internet and she mentions that you know there is an underrepresentation of tenured or tenure track faculty of color in humanities departments um and that this should change but she also points out that uh, a lot of Departments seem to be set up in such a way where uh, you could not be a person who is studying race and the digital uh, because uh, if you're if you're doing um, some sort of race or ethnic studies, uh, the, the topic of your study is taken to be something very, very specific and in some ways uh, not related to whatever's going on in cyber culture. And of course, this entire book is about pointing out how that's a false dichotomy uh, and how these things are all happening together. Yeah. Yeah. She, and this is a common critique that still exists today. I, I don't think any of the conditions that she is talking about have changed significantly. Um, yeah. You know. Again, right. There's, there's a, in some sense, this book is just like Lisa Nakamura tells you things that are true. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And, and things that have, that were true in 2002 and then remain true 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I, I was reading this and being like, Oh shit. <laughs> like, like we're in a bad spot still. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah except uh, he's, he's talking about the crisis in humanities, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Oof. Uh, sorry, 2002. Listen, not going to worry. It didn't get better. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a really great line here on page 143 uh, that I think is really good. Uh, to be raced in America means to live in a culture of simulation regarding race. Uh, I think that's uh, I don't think that's necessarily as pithy or sloganeering. Right. But I think that's a great way to get at exactly um, what is at stake in this book and about uh, in in the fact that like there is no, you know, biological basis to race. Um, 
but it is nevertheless uh, uh, the kind of uh, projection, right, that we inhabit, right, the kind of discursive and in, in institutional ideological projections um, that uh, nevertheless determine the ways that we're allowed to move through the world and think about our place in the world. Yeah, so then uh, uh, Nakamura concludes uh, with a brief discussion of uh, something written by Mackenzie Work, another Game Studies Study Buddies author, uh, not even that many episodes ago that we were talking about Work's Gamer Theory. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is from Work's uh, Virtual Geographies, where she talks about um, sort of so post post internet, right? Like what what have what has sort of changed about the world and about our living situation. Uh, and, uh, she works says that, uh, rather than having roots, right, rather than being sort of like stuck to the earth or tethered to the earth in, in, uh, you know, we might, in ways that we might've been historically or, or the ways we might have imagined our connections to place and planet and community and so on, rather than having roots, we have, um, aerials, which is, you know, the, the, the Commonwealth English term for antenna, uh, like instead of being uh, rooted to the ground, we have antenna, right? We have uh, sort of uh, growths out into the world that can pick up signals. And in fact, this is what is generating connection is is uh, what it is we are picking up on, uh, you know, the 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 cosmic Wi-Fi or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So that's all well and good. Uh, but Nakamura kind of critiques this a little bit to point out that uh, we shouldn't be so quick to, to dispense with roots because it's not just right. We aren't just the things that we're picking up from the air, uh, you know, in the word race itself uh, derives etymologically from the word for root, right? They are they are related in a deep and meaningful way uh, because mm -hmm. race is imagined when when race as a kind of uh, a paradigm comes around um, in, in the modern sense, right? It is formulated as a way of thinking about the roots of different types of people, right? Like, where did these people come from? Like, what is their history? And so on. Um, and Nakamura basically says, you know, sort of, you know, uh, point taken, uh, R.E. aerials, uh, but maybe we need to keep roots in the picture too, right? Maybe, maybe we're both, uh, rooted and aerial creatures. Mm -hmm. And that the, the aerial metaphor, right? Uh, Nakamura kind of takes it seriously and says, well, look, not everyone can afford an aerial, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, that if, if this is the embodying metaphor, then we have to recognize that there are mechanisms of, uh, social class and then social power that prevent people from having access to uh, the ability to pick up whatever's kind of coming through the airwaves. And if that's the case, then what do you make of that kind of split in society? This is another kind of point, I believe, where the digital divide shows up um, as kind of a, a, a critique or, or an idea. There is, I, I forget, I didn't make a note of it, but there's a place here in this book where the digital divide comes up as a kind of like concern of the white liberal subject in the 90s of, mm -hmm. of like oh we're producing a class of people who like can't use the internet and uh, you know and what aren't capable of doing so and so what do we do about that and nakamura basically says like well that was produced as a white concern but that ultimately people have not done much about it uh -huh. and it would be really interesting to kind of look at that in relationship to um you know what in kind of international media studies got called the leapfrog effect so the idea of, of countries without, for example, regular internet access, without, uh, you know, wired internet access, now everyone has a smartphone, and so they're able mm -hmm. to access the internet, but in 
in different ways. They learn to use the internet through smartphones and through the capabilities and affordances of smartphones rather than through any other method and how that changes governance and how that changes um, international um, relations and things like that. It would be curious, or I would be curious in kind of an update to uh, cyber types that thinks through that in, in, a, in an interesting, serious way. What happens when, so for example, where I'm from, right? I'm from the rural South. Uh, there are lots of places where I'm from where internet just didn't come. Like it, the, mm -hmm. the wires are not in the ground in order to facilitate that. And so it was have a satellite to get internet or use antiquated phone lines, right? A 56K modem up until very recently um, or use a cell phone in tether. So like my, my mother played, um, um, uh, what do you call it? The Elder Scrolls online tethered to a cell phone for, <laughs> for a while. Um, and I don't, I don't know if she's still doing that or not, but that's all to say, right. That there are interesting ways that, that those things got, um, navigated through new forms of affordances. Right. And I'm curious about how race transformed when, um, racialization is happening through the screen of a cell phone rather than happening through the browser that Nakamura is interested in. Maybe that work exists. If that work does exist, please, someone let me know. I, you know, I admit that I'm in, in this particular part of, of kind of race and technology studies in the internet specifically. I, I wouldn't say I'm super deep on that question uh, and on those kind of analyses. So so if you know of really cool stuff there, please uh, send it to me on Twitter uh, or uh, on, on the Discord. I'd be really interested in reading, you know, kind of cyber types 10 years on, you know, what did that argument look like? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that about uh, caps it off for cyber types. I think so too. Um, Michael, what's the next book? What is the next book we're reading? Yeah, so The Race Card. Uh, yeah, Tara Fickle's book that came out this last year, I want to say, 2020? Mm -hmm. Beginning of 2020? No, 2019. Maybe the maybe the tail end of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so uh, The Race Card from Gaming Technologies to Model Minorities. Um, and uh, we're going to see what what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... And then, and then maybe after that, you know, this is just spitballing, but some, a book that has come up a bunch of times in the show, um, that, that we haven't read and that is another kind of game studies adjacent, but not quite game studies book is the language of new media, the Lev Manovich book. Mm -hmm. And that might be a book worth doing to give people a primer on what's going on in this kind of very formative but not super in-depth read book in game studies, meaning they get cited a whole lot and kind of used as proof for something, but I don't, uh, you know, we don't see a whole lot of digging deep into it. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe we should do that. Yeah. Let yeah, us know what nice. you think. Yeah, let us know what you think. Sh sound off in the comments. Sound off in the comments. Sound off on Twitter. Hashtag uh, reading new media <laughs> with, with no G, R-E-A-D-I-N. Reading new media, hashtag reading new media. Uh, yes, if you uh, if you want us to read the language of new media in a couple months, or hashtag reading new media, and then just no if you don't want us to. Do not explain. Mm -hmm. It's only yes or no. Mm -hmm. Okay, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me on twitter.com at Warren is dead. You can figure out everything that we're up to at Ranged Touch on Twitter. You can go to rangedtouch.com to see all of our other shows, including Mages and Murder Dads on uh, the Baldur's Gate games and the uh, ensuing other games that are like Baldur's Gate. 
uh, too much future on the Fallout games where we've finished up the main plot of Fallout 3 and we're kind of headed into post-game content on that. That's on YouTube, but you can also find links to that on rangetouch.com. Uh, you can check out Just King Things, our show where we do something very similar to this, except we're talking about Stephen King novels and we're giving them a publication order. And also uh, all of that is supported by our Patreon, where you can get all kinds of exclusive goodies. So uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can... Uh, help us out there and support the show for $3 a month. You can get our, our access to our notes for the show as well as a podcast feed for too much future at $5 a month. You get access to the very special range touch podcast and the just King things bonus odes where you can hear Michael and I talking about film adaptations of Stephen King's stuff. <laughs> to put it generously to put it generously it's fun it's uh you know i look forward to to that all the time don't always look forward to recording just king things itself because sometimes it's a bummer <laughs> we, we've really only read one bad book so far but that bad book was bad enough that i dreaded doing it but universally mm-hmm. unilaterally totally bonus odes are where it's at so um, if you like listening to uh, to this show, Game Study Study Buddies, or you like listening to any of our other stuff, please consider giving us some money to keep the hosting going and to uh, give us some money for the like 80 hours of work we put into all this stuff every month mm-hmm. and uh, to keep the geckos fed. Yeah. Because uh, that's that's an important part of uh, of being a honcho. Yeah, I was going to say. And that's the the other thing is that when we reach uh, 1,025 uh, backers on Patreon, we will start a podcast where we are going to read through the the uh, internet magnum opus Homestuck. So if you really liked the parts of this uh, episode where we sort of talked about like the history of the internet and how sociality works online, uh, I, I expect that uh, when or if this Homestuck show happens, um, t- to my mind, as the Homestuck expert, you cannot talk about Homestuck without talking about sort of uh, the way the Internet worked at the time of its creation. Um, and my understanding of what Homestuck is about, if you want to hear me talk about Homestuck, uh, like that's the stuff I'm going to be the the, the, the sweet, sweet uh, stuff in my brain that's constantly bouncing around in there. Uh, that will be what is unleashed if you uh, uh, do the foolish thing and, and support us. Yeah, and if you like big, unrambling three-hour episodes about stuff, I've just got a, a feeling that that's what that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I just in the in the pit of my stomach, I believe that, <laughs> that that's that's where we're going to be at for it. So uh, you know, think about it. Okay, cool. Or we'll be back next month with uh, the race card, and um, hopefully you're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to reading that book. I have not read it yet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. And so next time, uh, remember, folks, that the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>